Brad Moran tells you how to make $205 million in four years. It's that easy. Okay, here we are. Ducks don't get cold feet. Episode 33, and we are here with a man that's definitely changed my life, that's for sure. Brad Moran, who's the CEO of Citrus AD. Brad, welcome to Adelaide. Thanks, man. It's good to be back home, uh, where I spent 10 years of my life. I know. I mean, you... You're an Adelaide boy. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm an English boy originally. Moved to Australia when I was 15. Spent three years on the Gold Coast in Melbourne. Then Adelaide, got stuck here for 10 years, played some footy, started a business and then got kicked out of town, decided to flee (laughs) to Brisbane. Welcome to Adelaide. (laughs) Welcome back. Hey, welcome back. I mean, you have done a a lot over the last few years that I've definitely seen and in fact I think we've known each other about six years or so when you started um you were peddling no cue at the time and then you went off and started citrus I mean that's a very you've given a very quick introduction on what you do but we'll get into that later Hang on, you're you origi- peddling yeah peddling peddling yeah, yeah ped- I don't know if that's the connotation you want to be using uh, really, but, uh, I- peddling citrus or sort of sounds pretty bad <laughs> it's a lot of peddling drugs at the I, I was peddling no cue <laughs> but hey let's get straight straight into it I mean you were actually born in um, West Midlands in England. Yeah, Shakespeare's town. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's why I can read and write. Um, what sort of upbringing did you have? Like, you know, were your parents there? Were they not? You know, they part big part of your life or they you, they sent you to boarding school? Gee, I mean, what was straight it? into the childhood trauma. Oh, is this oh, a psychology yeah, session? Yeah. Right. So, uh, yeah, I've been told it's a bit of a therapy session. Yeah, well, you know, founder therapy um, is something that's much needed for me at the moment. But, uh, oh, look, I... I was uh, one of three siblings, but both were much older than me, so sort of only child syndrome a bit. Um, both parents worked long hours. Um, what were the parents doing? Uh, my dad was in cars, so he was a really smart bloke, um, but ended up um, running his own business in, in a car dealership, became the most successful Ford dealership in Europe, um, but very much sort of worked for someone else, didn't, didn't want to sort of branch out and kind of go out by himself and then when he came to Australia he did he went out in real estate did really well for himself um, but super clever guy super sharp you know um, incredible IQ but uh, yeah my mum on the other hand was probably the more entrepreneurial of the two um, so I think I got a little bit of a mix of both okay I think, uh, but yeah my childhood was pretty stock standard what school do you go to over there? Uh, I went to oh I say stock standard I went to eight different schools um <laughs> Journey boy, <laughs> what was it? What was the, the you know, why were you traveling so much? Uh, well, I think you know, dad's business. Well, he, he would we would come in and out of wealth, and so we would kind of go public and private, public and private. Um, and then I kind of wanted to go back into public school because that's where my brother and sister went for senior school, so they wanted to get me back into there. And we'd move around a lot too. So as my parents kind of grew their wealth, they moved from suburb to suburb to sort of wealthier places and moved out of the sort of Bronx in Birmingham to the nicer places. Oxford? In, uh, not quite Oxford. Yeah, Although my dad did, he has a very interesting tale to tell of real estate and he could have bought a house in London at the time in about 1985, just before I was born for about 500,000 pounds, just a lot of money back then, but yeah. he could have stretched his mortgage to get there. It's worth about 30 million pounds these days because it is right in the middle of Mayfair. Wow. So, uh, sliding well, doors. He always, he never lets my mum forget that. Um, but, we've all played Monopoly. Yeah, 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 exactly. So everyone knows where Mayfair is. But, um, but no, look, I was always, 
I had two lives. When I came to Australia, I was head down in my sport because I didn't have a social life, like moving to Australia as an English person in the Gold Coast, which is probably the most prejudiced place on earth uh, for anyone from anywhere. It's not just about being racist towards Poms. It was racist like, towards everyone. No, racist. I, I felt bad. I was like, you know what? This is victimization. And then and then I realized that it was anybody that wasn't from the Gold Coast. It's like Which is most people. Yeah, yeah. It's like anyone that's South African, Zimbabwe, like New Zealand, Victoria, South, you know, South Australia, they're all lepers, you know, if they weren't from the coast. So most of my mates are all from interstate. But in England I was uh, I was a bit of a hoodlum, you know, I got mixed up in all the wrong crowds and sort of just spent my life kind of terrorising town. I'm guessing you played soccer yeah, in yeah. England. Yep, yep. You know, tall, well, Athletic, I've watched a few handsome. of your videos, mate. I wouldn't say fast. Yeah. Did hold the draft cam record for sprint, uh, but that's uh, Okay, and you're pretty quick on the 3K, maybe? Uh, second last, but I still run a pretty quick one for the Adelaide Crows. 10.28, but I came second last. Which is a split of about 3.27. So to the average person, that's pretty quick. But for Craigie, it was not quick enough. So I got ridden all pre-season for not being fit enough. And I thought I was pretty fit. <laughs> Apparently not. A bit of a culture shock. So, yeah. so you obviously soccer, soccer dream stopped when you came to Australia when you're 15. No, my soccer dream stopped at the age of 10. Okay. You know, when my dad said, you're not going to make it. So, <laughs> yeah, you know pretty early on you're not going to make it in England. You've either been picked up by a club and... He said, look, you can – because my dad played a few games for Aston Villa, so he had been there and not done that, bought the T-shirt. He got riddled with injury and his career was very, very different, interesting. He stopped by the time he was 17. But if you don't get picked up by a club by the age of 10 or in their books, then you you don't really stand a chance. And he goes, look, you can you can probably make it as a goalkeeper because you're very athletic and tall, but I hated playing in goal. Didn't want to do a spot I hated, so which is funny because I ended up playing footy, which I didn't like. So, <laughs> uh, so, so you do come over, you start playing footy. I think you have 20, 21 games uh, with was well they they weren't all with the Crows because nah. you're with North Melbourne, yeah, three with North. Yeah, so started my career with a bang, came out of the blocks, my first game, now rising star. You know, twenty one touches and twenty eight minutes of footy, and was on cloud nine after that. I thought I was, you know, f- feeling pretty good because yeah. I'd, all year I. Midway through the year, I was told by one of the senior managers of the club that I was going to get cut and just start preparing for the life after football. And so when I actually mentally said, okay, well, I've got nothing to play for anymore, I actually started to play better and uh, played enough good games to get picked reluctantly because the coach at the time did not want to play me at all. Um, And just through sheer luck, got my first game and then everyone was kind of like, oh, fuck this bloke. You know, he's actually not too bad. Um, and then the next week, I, I'm still pretty convinced that the coach tried to sabotage me and put me with a, a run with roll with Nathan Buckley. So yeah, he okay. said, I'd go tag Bucks for a, for a day. He thought, oh, it's a good lesson for you to see how an elite midfielder runs. I kind of I feel like he'd maybe set me up just to get flogged. But I'd stayed with him and he didn't get that many touches that day. And uh, I remember he sort of, winked at me at the end of the game and said, well done. And you know, that was pretty cool. And then uh, and the next year, I just couldn't get a game. Just They had 11 blokes over 200 centimetres and they were playing well, didn't need to play me. And uh, I just got frustrated and moved to the Crows. Um, and then I got given an opportunity at the Crows. Um, but again, then it was a different industry. Like was, I was just riddled with injury at the Crows. Just, uh, yeah, See, Crows was a long time with plenty of injuries. What sort of injuries? Yeah, well, I had a good preseason first year. 
um, had a good pre-season cup and then decided to go back to Westies and uh, play half a game just to get my game time up before round one. And I just remember I was about half time and I'd taken sort of 10 marks at that point. So I was feeling pretty good about myself. I thought I just got another quarter. And then uh, one of my teammates, James Seller, started giving me shit about getting cheap touches of the footy. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go for the hardest ball possible here. Yeah. And so the ball got kicked straight out of the center, bounce uh, straight over my head, ran back with the flight, trying to be a hero, jumped into someone, broke my finger. I was out for seven weeks, just trying to be a hero. And uh, I thought, I won't do that again. <laughs> Spent seven weeks on the bike. First training session came out, decided to kick the ball from 50 meters, you know, just as you do at the start of training, rip the hamstring off yeah, the bone. Right. There yeah. you go, that's another seven weeks. So my first game was round 16. And um, it was against wow. Port Adelaide showdown. <clears throat> Got dropped straight after it, even though I thought I'd played okay. Like, for you know, first gamers should be given at least a couple of games. Like, first game, you're a bag of nerves, right? Yeah. You're never going to perform. And the showdown is probably the hardest game to perform in because the whole state's watching you and Port Adelaide were better than us at that point. And I played against, you know, Brendan Lade and Dean Brogan. Not exactly the kind of guys you want to turn up against on your first day at work. Yeah. So, you know, um, got dropped and then the next week I managed to get a game but only because someone else went down injured. So they called me up at four in the morning on a Saturday and said, you need to fly to Sydney. Flew to Sydney and because I had no fear, like I didn't care at that point, Yeah. probably played the best game of footy I've played. Uh, I remember if I start games badly, typically it goes on the whole game. Yeah, it's pretty get, much just, that's the same for a lot of players. Isn't it, it is, it is, yeah. It's a confidence thing, particularly confidence players. They need early touches and early good. Uh, and I remember breaking that mold because in the first two minutes, I tried to take a mark against Darren Jolly out of this, out of the, in the goal square. He clearly outmarked me because he's a big unit. Kicked the goal, runner came straight on, gave me a spray, but I didn't care. Next time I took the mark. <laughs> I just, just, I, did, I don't think I did to spoil all game. I just kept trying to mark the ball. And, and when people say, what do you enjoy most about your footy career? I always go back to that one game. Like, wow. I, I kick four against Cartman next week, which is obviously like the the, the roar of the crowd of, of West Lakes when you're kicking four goals and you come from behind and beat Carlton was pretty sensational. Like you, you can't relive those moments. No amount of money or energy or anything you do can ever give you that feeling again. So there's one thing I do love about that, that football feeling, but I was still a bag of nerves at that game. So talk us through your first like showdown in particular. Like obviously being in Adelaide, showdowns are, are a big deal. Is it extra nervous going in there or do you actually know the guys from Port? Like do you know, these days it seems like everyone socialises together and yeah, I think you know, literally like, giving each other pats on the back and shit like that. Yeah, but, pretend bravado now. Uh, I think, well, the, funnily enough, I was still playing with a crew that – we're still part of that quite public brawl at the Ramsgate. Ramsgate. So there, there wasn't yeah. much love lost between those two teams. Yeah. And the two players I played against were just aggressive units anyway. Like they would just bash you no matter what. So uh, <laughs> I, I had a fun day at the park. Um, I don't actually. I don't. I didn't read into it too much. Like there's there's a lot of guys on the field that give you banter and shit, and but they just talk shit to everybody. Yeah. Anyone and everyone. And and I remember St Kilda were the worst. This guy's just running around, just yapping, yapping, and you just feel like, mate, you just got shit for brains. You're just yapping for no reason. Like, you're not affecting me in any way, shape, or form. So, like, basically, zip your mouth. But Port, um, I don't know. I was probably too new to Adelaide to understand the gravity of the 
the showdown. But um, I knew it was a big game. Um, I didn't really get to know the poor guys after that. Like, I think I didn't go out much. Like, I didn't go out clubbing or anything like that. So I didn't probably meet them out socially. But I do know in Melbourne when I played for North, like I was pretty close to the Collingwood guys and the Hawthorne guys. And they, they do get pretty close because you, you, you're sort of ripped away from your families. And then at 18, 19, you're sort of trying to find your bearings in, in, a, in a new state. And so you do. You, at North Melbourne, I was the only 18-year-old apart from Jesse Smith. Everyone else was 21 and older. So we were... We were young, so you, you know you would cling to other players from other clubs. Um, but Adelaide, no. I mean, I played in a couple of showdowns, but to me, it was all just about my game. I never really concentrated on the opposition. Uh, didn't really care. So that's pretty much what you learnt later on in the piece, I guess, until evidently something happened, obviously, to end a career. Or <clears throat> yeah, funnily enough, no. Like even though I'd play well, I would get to the end of every game and just breathe a sigh of relief. Like, it was never, geez, I played well. It was like, thank God I didn't play shit. And, yeah, and wow. I, and, more- I, and you're calculating in the last five minutes, have I done enough not to get dropped? That's wow. pretty much every game that I played that I thought about. And when you play like that... You can't can't perform No, nah, you don't, because you're playing with shackles on and you're not playing with confidence and you're not playing with freedom. So... And, and our team were very conscious about how much you ran and, and how much you did off the ball. And so I was very, like, I look back Were you at, tracked back then? Were they, did they have trackers? Oh, yeah, we had the yeah, GPS yeah, on yeah, all the time. Yeah. And, they, and they'd work your sprints. <clears throat> and guys would cheat and sprint up and down, like, the sidelines when they were doing their, doing their warm-ups and stuff. They'd try and get in, like... But they, they didn't realise you could see the clock and where they'd sprinted and stuff. But it was. They were far too focused on, you know, we'd get to Monday morning and it'd be like, how many Ks did you cover? Uh, how many sprint efforts did you do? How many one percenters did you do? And I know they all play a factor in winning games, but you became so focused on, like if I'd had 35 touches in kick four, if I didn't do 45 sprint efforts, I'd get pulled through the coals. So it, it was just focusing on the wrong areas. And I just didn't like that. And then what it did is it forced you when you're out in the footy field to start thinking about, how many sprint efforts have I done? Like, uh, and then you end up just running around to have f- fucking hit these sprint efforts and you're like, I'm running away from the ball <laughs> because I'm trying to tick a box so that I don't get grilled on Monday. And uh, Do you think it's like how many people playing AFL would actually be thinking that mindset? Uh, look, I think every club is different. Like North... They did not care about your fitness. Yeah. Too much. I mean, you had to be fit, obviously, yeah, yeah. right? Well, you had to be match fit. Yeah. But I'll give you an example. In the 3K time trial in in, uh, in North Melbourne, I would come in the top five as, wow. a, as a big guy, right? Okay. And, it, and, and at the Crows, I came second last. So, but North... And, and that's and, cruising too. That's like a 10-minute 3K. Yeah, yeah. But at North, I ran slower. I was running like 11.20. So wow. I wasn't running that fast. Not to say they weren't fit. They were just fit in different ways, right? They were sprint fit, you know, repeat effort fit, which is what you needed to be. But I was also about eight kilos heavier at North. You know, and, and but that's what you got to be as a ruckman. You got to be heavier to battle with other blokes who are ten kilos heavier than you. Yeah. Um, but no, every club's different. Um, Laidley didn't care about fitness too much. He just cared about could you find the ball, could you use the ball well. <laughs> yeah. You know. Um, so for all his pitfalls as a coach, I actually think he was a pretty smart operator. Yeah. Like he wasn't that personable. Like he didn't. I don't feel like he loved me. He didn't like me that much. Yeah. Um, but I feel like as a tactical coach, he was very good. 
Like he was the one of the first coaches to kind of bring in that, you know, kick to the side, inside fat side kick, you know, so come back, bring the ball back into the corridor and then switch the sides, gives you forwards. So he was one of the first guys to really do that. Yeah. And, you know, he was kind of hamstrung at North because we didn't have a budget, you know, didn't have very good facilities and, you know, he made the best out of a bad team, to be honest. And not saying we had a bad team, but we didn't have number one draft picks, you know. We'd yeah. always kind of finish eight, ninth, tenth, and so we'd always be in that run of the mill kind of mix. So, um, so with with your coaching, you got to see totally different styles of coaching. Mm. Does any of that help for when you're making decisions in business? Oh, 100%. That's the only thing I took away. Uh, how not to coach people. Uh, as brutal as that sounds. Yeah. I feel like the old school coaches... I, it was funny because I was part of a transition period, I reckon, where... Coaches now coach probably much better in the way they should coach. So the Paul Rose style, the consultative style, um, you know, the getting to know your players yeah. intimately, deeply, yeah. what motivates them? Because everyone's different. Yeah. Some players need to be whacked over the wrists and they need to be smacked around and because that's that gets them going. Yeah. Some players, particularly players who are my generation, the generation uh, younger than me, I'm not ready for that old school, you know, beat you up type stuff, right? Because they just didn't grow up in it. And so they need a lot more, they're more confidence type players. And so you got to understand the human psyche a little bit more and start to treat people differently. And so, you know, it's not necessarily their fault, but what you take away from it is you can't treat an engineer the same way you treat a sales guy, the same way you treat an executive, the same way you treat a finance person. And you treat them firstly as human beings. And you've got to understand that as a founder, you have very, very different motivations to your staff. And that, that was a hard lesson I learned very early as well in yeah. my business career. But I, I don't take a huge amount of analogies out of football other than I look at, okay, why, when did I play my best and why didn't I play my best in certain, in certain times? And when you're constantly playing under fear, I know I never did my best work under fear, so I'm assuming no one else does. Yeah, And so... The first rule as a founder is you've got to act as a shield when you run out of money, which we did several times, when the business isn't going well, when the shit hits the fan, when you're under huge amounts of pressure, you've got to have a poker face. You've got to pretend like everything is fine because if staff start to get the feeling that yeah. you've got 10 grand in the bank and you can't make payroll, what do you think they're going to do? Yeah. You know, they're going to... They're going to Look elsewhere. They're going to get real nervous. Yeah. You know, they're going to take their eye off the ball. Yeah. They're, they're going to start to lose faith in you and lose faith in the business and then and then everyone gets nervous. So it's definitely one lesson I took away from from football was to, to look at what drives people. So what not only their position, you know, because everyone's got different personality types, but getting to know people and going, okay, why do you do what you do? You know, it's the why, not the what, right? Um, and that's what I think what a lot of people forget about startups is – if you don't have a really strong conviction about why you're doing what you're doing, you're never going to make it. Yeah. No matter how good your idea is or how well you execute. Yeah, because I think did you honestly go into football thinking this is my career? Like I don't, I don't know what sort of money you paid back then. Um, you not, know, it was not probably enough, enough to retire on. Oh, okay, definitely not <laughs> enough to retire on. I don't think. Well, there's not many. Well, but I these drafted days, in my first year, I was earning thirty nine grand. Yeah. Yeah. Second, okay. second year is 54, third year is 65 because that's your standard contract. Yeah. And then you get match payments on top of that. And if you if you were half decent, you'd be on half a mil maybe. But 
Nowadays, a little bit different. Salary cap's gone up, but I can't imagine the average player gets paid that much more. Yeah, I'd say it's yeah. You get your your high end that everyone sees. You, you do, and, but oh, you can earn hundred hundreds of thousands of dollars playing football. Yeah, but that irritates me. You know, people get on TV and they go, "These players these days are earning so much money." And it's like, yeah, okay, but if you take, they're in the top point one percent of what they do. Yeah, right. And the amount of money they bring into the AFL is massive. Yeah. So as a percentage of the AFL, I think it's about. 25 to 28%. It was 21% when I was playing. So over every dollar the AFL earns, the players get 21. Well, the NBA is 55 yeah. and the NFL is 55. So all we would do is in the Players Association is saying, we just want a higher percentage of whatever you earn. So if you have a crap year and you have, you know, you don't earn that much, then that's fine with us. Like, but there was never that equality for players. But in terms of like players actually earning that much money, you know, I liken it to, okay, what are the top 0.1% of CEOs yeah. earn? Like, let's look at the CBA CEO, you know, 15 mil a year. You know, um, but people look at footballers and go, "Well, they're overpaid." It's like, no, they don't. They, they got a they got a five to seven year career at best, yeah. And totally. they're going to come out with the better part of their educational life gone. Um, they're eighteen to twenty five. They've probably been normally been ripped away from their families as well, so they've got no support networks. And then they're left on the scrap heap at twenty five, twenty six, with bodily injuries, mental injuries. That that you know, I had a hip replacement three months ago, yeah, just recently, and I'm thirty five. So you know. <laughs> Those people that aspire to be AFL footballers probably don't think about the long-term consequences of what it can do to your body and brain. Like, so no, I don't think they get paid anywhere near enough. Yeah. So you know the and, and it's and it's 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 fucking brutal. Oh, it is. Like, it is brutal. You know, you watch these guys and you sit there and and you just think that that's going for you know four quarters. Yep. It's brutal at any point in time, and you watch and think it's amazing. And the, the training and match preparation that needs to go to that is your whole life. And you talk about, oh, you're losing your, your, your 18 to 24 when you may be going to uni if that's what you want to do. But you're also playing football, I'm assuming, um, from the age of 10 flat out where your parents are taking you all around yeah, and, yeah, and, you yeah. know, and your focus is footy and you, that's yeah. what you want because, you know, whether you want to be a – a Formula One driver, football player, at, at yet some age, you want to, hopefully for kids, it sinks in that I want to, I want to be this one day, yep. and that then takes time and effort. And yeah, I, I'm, it's a pretty similar outlook to what I look at with you know, if you want to be good at something, you really need to be good at it very young. Oh, definitely. And yep. and then sometimes by the time you actually get to that stage, you're fucking over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a late starter to footy. But because I played all the sports that like kind of make up a good yeah. footballer, so soccer, soccer, rugby, rugby, basketball, like I knew I, I could catch a ball, but yeah. I but I was generally drafted because I was an athlete and because I, I picked up the game quickly. Because when I put my mind to something, I just want to be the best at it. So I would even at North when I got drafted, I would stay back after training and kick probably three hundred balls at the post, which is probably why my hips knackered now. <laughs> <laughs> but I, because I knew that if, if I wanted to play at the elite level, I, I had to improve everything and I had to train harder than everybody else because I was coming from so far behind. Yeah. But you're right. You know, it's, you know, there's an analogy about, um, uh, what do they call them? The, the ballerinas on ice, like the, yeah. uh, flatly, or, the ice skaters, yeah. the yeah, ice skater, or like the, you know, I forget, doing, the, I forget the terminology. Flat, what is it? The flatly, the, the dancers, the dancers, whatever they are, that. Ballet, yeah, no, nah, the ballerina dance, like, you know. No, I feel bad now not being able to know what the profession is, but it's basically, it's you know, where, where they dance on ice in the Olympics. Okay. So they basically said, you know, to Are be. They a, ice dancers? 
sounds good. There's a specific word for Olympics it. Olympics is coming up just, yep, uh, yep, just yep. February. That's true. China, yep. um, uh, spying on everything. Yeah, yeah, we might talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, we just did, I think. Figure skating. Figure yes. skating. <laughs> Fuck, there it is. All that cortisol, mate, just deletes. <laughs> stress, cortisol deletes the memory. Sorry. Um, 10,000 hours. So you're right, 10,000 hours of practice of something to become, let's say, perfect at it. But Okay, yeah. but that makes sense. So you imagine how many hours you would spend playing football. So you imagine how many days, 10,000 hours is. Yeah. It's a significant oh, that's a lot because someone worked that out for me. That's a, that is a lot when you look at it, it like is, that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I started late, but I had to pick it up as, as I went. But you do, you, you kind of – the thing I miss about – the thing I, I don't want to say I miss about football, but um, I never grew up with it, so I didn't have that uh, – desire to play at the elite level. Yeah. I just wanted to play because I just happened to be good at it and take to it quickly and naturally. And um, you know, my parents are pretty – they were the main drivers of me playing. Like I, I just didn't want to play. I wanted to play rugby. And I remember my mum coming on to the school fields because I went down to training once and they are like, oh, your son's tall and athletic. And Roger Merritt was there and an ex-Brisbane Lions yeah, yeah. player. Yeah, and he uh. – he, he, Said to my mum, was like, oh, he could probably get drafted if he, you know, if he picks the game up pretty quickly because they're starting to draft projects. So, how old were you then? 17. Yeah. So, because like, they were drafting project players, players from other codes, put them in the IS, train them up, you know, basically train athletes. Um, and I was, just didn't like it, you know. First game I played, I played, I sat in, in the ruck. I was like, I'm just jumping into a bloke who's just knee me in the side and the yeah. back. I'm like, this isn't fun. Yeah. And then I went to all forward and there's some, Prick was just el- elbowing me in the back all day. I just turned around and belted him, and I was like, got a fifty, and then got reported. I'm like, well, this guy. I just didn't understand the game. Yeah. And um, I was like, I'm going back to rugby. And then my mum came down to the school, and she literally dragged me off the field and said, No, you're playing AFL, whether you like it or not. See, your mum's pretty hardcore. She like, was, yeah. So yeah. to see that you've moved to eight different schools in such a young period of time, you know, that really does show the life of. Of trying an entrepreneur, which is your dad must have been, yeah, yeah, and your mum as well, yeah. So that's a lot of high and low. How does that affect you as as seeing that as a kid, like oh another school, like does it make you a bit of a loner, or does it make you like oh I've got to be another group of people, another group of friends, like you know that'd be quite traumatic. Yeah, no, it definitely was, but it I guess it hardens you for the business world. Um, but I reckon you know the hardest thing for me was leaving England. At 15. Yeah. So I was in grade 10 then at school and had a pretty good group of mates and had a very, very established network of people like I'd spent 15 years building and literally cut them off overnight. Um, come to Australia to a very hostile environment at school, all-boys school, Yeah. just bitchy. But what was the reason to come to Australia? It's a better lifestyle. You know, for your parents? So for you everyone, really, said- yeah. I mean, Birmingham's not the great, greatest place in the world to yeah. live. Um, it looks like a hole. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Sorry for anyone no, from Birmingham. Well, anyone in Birmingham will tell you that. Yeah. And if they if they don't, they're lying. Yeah, it, it's it's not a nice place. Uh, weather's pretty ordinary. People are pretty angry. Uh, you know, but you learn a lot of street smarts there because if you go out over you know, past the time of four o'clock and you're not got your wits about you, you'll get mugged, robbed, bashed. Like it's it's a very volatile, dangerous society, and you would never want your children to grow up there. So, um, so we moved to Australia because we. Saw the great weather. We moved to the Gold Coast. We'd been here on holiday. A dream, mate. So Gold like, Coast, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a pretty far. Surf, sun, sand. Pretty far from Birmingham, uh, that's for sure. So we moved from Birmingham where it was like minus two in October to 
42 degree weather in, in Queensland when we first arrived. So it was a bit of a bit of, bit of a culture shock. But um, yeah, that, that was tough. So then I ended up with a few mates at school and then I moved to Melbourne. So I moved away from those mates and then didn't really pick up any mates in Melbourne until my second year when the next round of draftees kind of came in. But yeah, football doesn't really breed good friendships. Yeah. It's too competitive. What school did you go to at the in, on the Gold Coast? Uh, I went to the Southport School or TSS. So... From what I'm hearing, it's been an extremely lonely process. At, you know, new groups of friends moving through, your parents trying to give you the best that they can. Yep. Hence why you had the highs and lows, which is crazy in itself to hear that. Um, and then you to come over and with football, you know, you get drafted. I'm assuming you have to leave your parents or did they – they didn't come with you, I'm assuming, or – No, no, I went to Melbourne, yeah. So yeah. the school – it all happened pretty quick, actually. The school did not like me playing AFL at all. Um, so I was a rower, actually. Got out of rugby. You're good size, uh, good size for a yeah, rower. I heard, just I heard, in you, case you're I heard you're a rower too, yeah, JP. See? So anytime you want to reel off a stat, mate, let's go. So toe to toe, see who's a better rower. Um, I and I'm you an athlete. Cox, right? I am an athlete. Uh, you know what? I reckon we could do a virtual row off. We could. Uh, yeah, I reckon we do. And we'll uh, invite the Vinkelvoss brothers. Right now, you'd, brothers. you'd beat me Yeah, I'm, with one I'm, hand. Look, I'm, I've been doing virtual workouts. Have you? Yeah, yeah every morning. Nice. It's a new daily routine. But What's a virtual workout? Oh, on your VR. Yeah. yeah like you're, right. See? So it's, it's gone to another place here. It's a new world we live in. Is this a special shout-out to a sponsor, Chibo, for <laughs> supplying the caffeine? Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe that's what it is. But it, it's... It, Going through that through your childhood, you know, your, your parents um, seem to nurture you quite a lot, but you're put in so many situations. Do you do you find that that's, I believe, successful business people, it's lonely? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, From what I've seen, I look at, you know, I look at my old man and he has lots of people he works with and lots of people that, you know, have been with him and do anything for him. But when I really look at, he has a very, very small friendship group yeah because i think it's a very lonely place up the top because you have to sacrifice so much to get there what's what's your view on that yeah well i think about coming out of citrus i had a little bit of time to sort of digest the last 35 years of my life um and you do you start to question you have this identity crisis yeah and friendship definitely comes into it and to be honest, mate, when I'm scraping the barrel with you as a mate, you know, that's when I know I've fucking hit rock bottom, you know? <laughs> but, uh, oh, but seriously, though. Thanks, thanks. That's thanks. right. When I think about, you know, who I'd call to go out for a beer or who'd want to go out for a beer with me, it'd be like two, three people yeah. at most. And most of them don't even live by me. So, yeah. you know, if I think about on the Gold Coast, I don't have any mates. Yeah. Uh, Brisbane, don't have any mates. Um, Melbourne, I had a mate, but. Yeah, we moved away. And so, yeah, it does become lonely. But the loneliness also enables you to concentrate. Right? So even though I had a brutal time at school, and don't get me wrong, people have much harsher times than me. I'm not saying, you know, woe is me. I'm not living in a third world country fighting for my next bag of rice. But everyone's everyone's problems are real, right? So at school, one of the good things about not being in the inner friendship circles with all the cool kids was that I was like, you know what? Cool, I'm going to spend my time focused on sport. Yeah, And I got into rowing. I did that for two years. And then I kind of got sick of looking at the back of someone's head. And, uh, you know, I decided 
a mate got me into footy and I thought I can do both, right? I was a morning sport, footy is an afternoon sport, I can do both. Went to the school and I said, look, I might miss one weight session a week, but I was the best rower by a mile. So I didn't need the extra training. And I trained every day in the off season and, and they said, no, I've got to pick one or the other. I said, well, if you're going to give me that ultimatum and be so petty, yeah. I'm going to pick AFL. Uh, and then I didn't realize how political the school was until uh, like I had teachers saying to me like, oh, we lost the head of the river because of you. I'm like, you're my maths teacher. <laughs> Why well, you shouldn't even know about this. How do you even know? Like, and then I was just, it just clicked to me how political it was. And then, you know, when I got drafted, the school got asked, you know, you want to make a comment? One of your pupils has made it to an elite sport. No, we don't comment on AFL. Wow. And uh, the only reason I turned it to my formal was to give the finger to everyone. So, like, because I'd been drafted that morning. And, uh, you know, I That's was. a bit of fuck you. Well, a little bit, yeah. yeah. I, I don't say I'd like to sink to that level, but I did it gracefully. But, uh, you know, camera crews were there and stuff. And it was, it was, it was quite, you know, enjoyable for the three and a half years of torment that I'd sort of copped. And um, it was a bit embarrassing for, for everyone too to, to sort of have these news crews there and just try really hard not to acknowledge that they were there. Yeah. And, uh, and, and refuse to comment. It's on the Gold Coast. This uh, is, uh, uh, I think it was like the Marriott or somewhere. I forget where it was. What a ball of I was at the, I was, mate, I was at the formal for like 10 minutes <laughs> and then school started that night. But because I'd been drafted, I was so conscious about- Someone taking a photo of you no, no, drinking. No, I don't care about that. I was just, I got drafted in North Melbourne. So if you didn't drink, you weren't in the culture. <laughs> I would have got more street cred turning up to North having had 16 beers that night and being in a bathtub of VB, you know. But uh, no, I, I, the first thing that went through my head was- I guess I, to go to Richmond, you needed to be in a bathtub full of hookers and blood. <laughs> like that, that would, you would fit in just well in Richmond. So I uh, guess you picked the right scenario. Yeah, no comment there. Um, I, I, but you, I but mean- No, I, I literally went back to my hotel room and I, I kind of partied for like half an hour and I, and I immediately started thinking about, I gotta get home. I gotta, I gotta, get, I gotta, I gotta get fit. I gotta yeah. train. Like, how fit am I? Am I AFL ready? You know. And I started just to panic, and uh, so I went home and basically. So, what just, was the phone conversation about that? Like, what? Like, who was the first, who called you? How how did it go down? Did did you know it was coming? Uh, I mean, you must have been speaking to clubs. Yeah, no, no. I had because um, they make a bit of big, big deal of it these days. They I do, think yeah. I saw something on TV. Like in America, it's a massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With it. but here I've never seen it. But the other day I saw. I'm, I don't follow football at all. But no, look, I, I was not going into the draft confident. Um, I'd been <clears> given <throat> one nice comment from one of the recruiters. I got interviewed by two teams. One was Brisbane, yep. and um, I really wanted to go to Brisbane because I wanted to stay home. And Brisbane were the premiers at the time, and I just remember having uh, a meeting with their recruitment guy at the time and he just didn't like me at all. He just, you know, maybe he thought that I was some silver spoon sport prick or whatever, but he said, oh, look, we we may take you in the rookie draft if we're desperate. I'm like, yeah, because that's what you tell an 18-year-old kid whose whole life is built around you know, making it to the AFL. So that didn't leave me with a lot of confidence. <laughs> Shit. And then, uh, and then I had a pretty nice conversation with the North Melbourne recruitment guy who ended up being a really terrific top bloke. And uh, he said to me, he said, we're going to take you in the third round at pick 58. Yeah. And I didn't believe him though because I'd just heard from the Brisbane that I was not even worthy of a draft. You know, I was yeah. lucky to be rookied. They'd rookie anybody. 
I'll say rookie anybody. Shouldn't say that. Yeah, no, talented yeah, players ta- get yeah, rookie. I was going to say Mel Michaels is a rookie, uh, <laughs> and half the Brisbane Lions premiership teams are rookies. But um, yeah, just the contrast made me very nervous about the draft. And then I remember watching it online because you could watch it on, on on the internet at that point. And mm. yeah, right on the money. Fifty pick fifty eight. Their first pick. Their first pick because they traded all their picks away that year. Um, I got picked up, and it was a very surreal moment. Like you don't quite grasp the fact that you've been drafted and then um but then it also kind of hit home that i was you know about to pack up and leave and then went to melbourne super lonely there like older players don't really want to like babysit younger players and there wasn't many 18 year olds there's none as me and jesse smith wasn't any 19 year olds 20 year olds the earliest was two 21 year olds that got drafted that year it's a bit more old old yeah josh gibson these these days they turned out a lot younger gibbo was like the only one who uh, came in that draft with me but he was a Melbourne guy you know big friendship group in Melbourne had, he was 21 so he was mature he was already playing at Port, at Port Melbourne at the time so you know um, he was nice everyone was nice but just not like I live by myself like so yeah really yeah the, the guy who ran uh, <coughs> the guy who ran player development at the time nice enough to give up his apartment and give it to me and say you're going to live in my apartment but I live in this new town by myself with, you know, so I just cruised up and down Port Melbourne, just shopping and doing nothing. But luckily, I had training to keep me occupied. But yeah, uh, that, yeah that's a big shot. That wasn't a great start. Thirty it, grand a year, mate. Like, yeah, that yeah. lasts a long time. And then you sort of forget how to forge relationships <laughs> after that. And then I went to the Crows, and the Crows is just super competitive, you know. And so one half of you is trying to make friends, and then the other half of you is thinking, well, it's it's you or me. Like, who's going to make this team? And um, if there was one criticism I would make about that that culture, it was it was it was ruthlessly competitive. But it maybe it went too far down the line of being competitive too much internally as well. Where yeah, okay. When you're climbing over your teammates to try and get a game, yep. And you're just looking at them as your enemy, yeah. And it, then you look at the exec teams as the, uh, they're doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Don't get me started on 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 how the execs run, but. That's a whole different ball game altogether. But you don't deal with them day to day. Like yeah. you deal with them once a year. Yeah. Uh, you know when it comes to negotiate your contract. But so they're, you, they're just businessmen doing their jobs, right? But the the players, you know, you've got to you've got to kind of establish early in the piece where people sit in the pecking order. And I think that if you do that, then players kind of know I'm not the first round pick. I'm not going to play for a while. It's going to take a while for me to get into the. To the team and then you don't you kind of know where you sit whereas I guess the problem with having people that clubs that kind of develop that equality you could call it equality and that's probably not a bad thing where you got a lot of mature age players kind of competing against each other is no one's spot is ever safe yeah and, and I don't know whether that's a good thing or not yeah but it's, all I know is that you get a lot of players playing under fear and yeah. it's very hard to forge relationships 100% meaningful ones uh, with a bloke where it's just you and him and if it's your career or his. Uh, and then yeah. when there's money on the line, it gets even worse. I, I look at it in even in retailing, you know, you're not judged every week. <laughs> so every week, you know, you have a... You, during you're coronavirus, only, you are, mate. Uh, what? <laughs> during COVID, you are. <laughs> well, yeah, that's daily. <laughs> but, but in general, you're only as good as your last... Um, you know, we are saying is you're only as good as your last visit, for instance, if, yep. if someone's coming in. And it's all, but 
when you're on that spotlight and, you know, that's a profession, you're getting paid to do that profession, you're not just judged by the team. You're judged by the fanatical fans oh, out yeah. there, plus people like me who I, I don't give a shit about what happens, but I, I like staring people up and <laughs> football people go crazy. Like there's no doubt about it. And I'm assuming you would have had some um, crazy um, fans back in the day. Do you have any? Oh, yeah, that was, yeah, that was luckily a, I, I was on their good side for a while. Okay. Um, so I don't want to go into any fan stories because, you know, yeah, I, I don't actually, I don't want to go down that track. But, you know, the there's irony. Not, there's, not, there's not many stories there. The, the irony of all of this. Other than the Port fans really like me. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting well, story. That's an interesting one. But I remember going out to the Armour one night and having a beer and just and talking to people and and got talking to all these Port fans. And they're like, oh, you know, come over to Port. We'd love you to have you at Port. And oh, funniest thing. <laughs> I was, I was, it was the showdown where I didn't get picked. Yeah. And I was playing well and I should I probably should have got picked. I got picked a week later. But, you know, it's by the by. And funnily enough, wherever the players sit in the ground, because it was a Port game so we sat in the away crowd so we were kind of behind the goals <coughs> all the execs were there all of the managers were there all the players players wives and these blokes who I'd happened to be having a drink with were standing fucking six rows in front of us in the standing area and they've turned around and gone fucking Bradman we'll have you at port mate come over and play for us you know the crows like well and then and i'm just sitting there like oh my god what do i do what do i say just don't say anything just pretend you don't even know him and uh alicia's like that was that was the guy from the alma uh i'm like because oh. this guy was a massive unit too he was like six seven built like a brick shit house and the kind of guy that if you're screaming your name, you're kind of thinking, where's the police? Like, you know, like. But it was so funny. And uh, my, my wife's a diehard Port supporter, so she was always trying to get me to go to Port. And uh, Is she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. my All God. All family well, diehards. I, I, saw a, uh, I saw your son the other day wearing Port Power Hat, and I was like, come on, bro. Oh, well, the Crows just don't send me any merch, mate, so... I mean, I'm trying to convince him, and the form's not good at the moment, so I can't turn the TV on. So, you know, the Crows board need to pull their finger out and send me some merch. You know? Well, they should, and the irony of it all is, I mean, the, the brand... But van- I'm still back in the Crows. Yeah. When uh, I take him anywhere, he's in yeah. Crows uniform. Yeah. I, you know, I go out, <laughs> scrape the barrel of my wallet, get him a Crows Guernsey. They're hard to get in Queensland. <laughs> yeah, they are bloody hard to get. But all his uncles and... Cousins keep sending him, you know, port shit, which I have to, you know, keep. You know, I, I guess there's a bit of irony about the whole football piece, and I would rather hear about business view, but it sort of sets the message of uh, the tone of how you've got to where you've got today. It's a bit of irony that, you know, looking at the current form of the Crows, their last brand value was 2013 at $20 million. You and I, we could buy the Crows. Now, that would be fun. That'd be a bad investment. (laughs) (laughs) But we could. And we could, you know, maybe you could change the way things about fuck. I don't understand how how clubs have have value anyway because they're all owned by the AFL. Correct. And that's half the the problem, so don't get me started on. Yeah, I don't want to go down that track. So, but, but that hinders the clubs too, though. Like they're they're not really allowed to kind of do their own thing. They're yeah, well, governed by the AFL, well, and the SNFL, like and Drakes were governed by Foodland, hmm. and 
every messaging that came out that we did, we had to make sure it was okay with the Foodland um, guidelines. Yeah. So all of all of these pieces put together meant Drake's couldn't truly be Drake's. Mm. And that until we built the warehouse, which is now a couple of years ago, far out, time flies, mm. was a couple of years ago. It was Great investment, fir- by the way. Sorry? Great investment, by the way. Yeah. Well great. Done. Well done, Rog. Well a, done, Jeff. A great investment. And, and we've been offered well over $100 million to buy the place and lease it back to us. And, you know, it's obviously worked out very well for us. And we couldn't truly get rid of those shackles until we went out Drake's. Yeah. And that was a massive commitment to to not only our team, but to the state that, hey, we're going to stand on our own two feet. And I understand what it's like working under that because people just, you know, we still get called Foodland today. And there's no doubt people still, you know, that's years of saying, hey, Foodland, Foodland, now it's Drake's and I'm... Yeah, but like Coke changing their brand, right? Correct. You're still going to say Coke because it's been conditioned. Correct. So for me, I understand what it's like to work under the guidelines that you have to. And now, anything that we do now is 100% our fault. If it's good, it's good. But if it's bad, it's totally our fault. And I think the change of mindset of people within our own business when we actually realise that these decisions we are making, they are being made for the best of the the business and we need to make sure that when we did have that breakaway, we we were actually delivering on everything in our minds Mm. we thought we could because when you trade under the the Foodland banner or under Metcash, you sit there and go, oh, yeah, it's their fault. Like if they produce a bad catalogue, it's their fault. And for the first time ever it comes straight back onto us. So it's all on us. And yeah. and that's a huge difference. And I think you've, you know, you notice that when you go out on your own. But mm. before that, I want to, what was, have you have had a paying, like, you know, have, have you ever worked for someone yeah. other than other than football? Because you're clearly working for the club, but. I had a couple of jobs. Yeah. I'm curious because I know a few entrepreneurs, which is a real cool term that people like to use now. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think everyone needs to put that on their um, LinkedIn profile. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But they're a startup. They've got a yeah, side hustle. Yeah. Everyone's got a startup, yeah, mate. Yeah. So so for me, what have you worked for someone? Yeah, yeah. I worked yeah. for City Beach for City Beach clothing store. Yep. The well, one down at, at Glenelg? No, no, in, in, in the in, city. No, no, in Pacific Ferry and Gold Coast. <clears throat> oh, okay, okay. I was right. in Adelaide yep. then, yeah. Yep. I, I worked there for all of three hours. Yep. They put me upstairs in the tagging department and I tagged about 400 shirts wrong, put holes in every one of them, and then the woman came in and said, who has tagged these incorrectly? And luckily half the people had gone away for lunch. Oh, it must have been Dave, you know, he must have done it. And then I went for my lunch break and never came back. <laughs> So that was my uh, <coughs> that was my stint in retail. So that's where I got my retail knowledge oh, from, mate. You know? <laughs> I could see why you're so entrenched with retail now. Is City Beach still around? Oh, nah. Yeah, so if you are, thread, I just hit Brad up. I think. Yeah, um, yeah. I would I'll, I'll pay the four hundred dollars worth of damage now. But uh, <laughs> I didn't take my paycheck for that for that shift. But no, I you know, my old man ran car dealerships for a long time, so I, I was used to. Cleaning cars. So you're a car salesman. That's is that used you, car salesman, mate. Used cars. So you don't strike me. You know what? I've seen some of the clothes you wear, like the salmon. Never sold a car. The salmon I jeans. Money, but yeah, keep going. I've never sold a car to make money. Fuck. Welcome to my world, mate. <laughs> Appreciating assets, mate. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Let's not get started. Okay, okay, okay. Let's not get yeah. started. So, so 
Did you find any skill? What, what, how, what sort of skills did you learn selling cars? Uh, I didn't sell cars. I washed them. But okay. I, I look back to my, my, my parents used to take the piss out of me as, as a kid because uh, I was uh, suspended at school in, in private school for extortion. <laughs> so I would uh, – ah, This is going to be I, good. I would sort of know that the kids are really rich and so I would like say, oh, you want to play football with my ball at lunch? It's going to cost you – pound 50 or so and so I'd start generating income from charging people to play with my football at lunchtime and so I'd go and invest in a nice ball because everyone wanted to play with the best ball but I didn't know I was doing it I was seven years old and I, but I just I just wanted to do it and I just wanted to have the money and I, I wouldn't do anything with the money I just collect it and the only reason the teachers found out is because I had like 100 bucks worth of cash sitting in my desk at, at school so I was a little bit of a rebel then and then uh, ah, that's like under the age of 10 I was seven. Do you know what I was selling at school under the age of 10? And on nappies. I was selling Coke. Oh, yeah. 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 Coca-Cola. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, someone's phone's ringing. It's vibrating. It's from... Is that... It's the, from Iran. But is it? Not, oh. See how quickly that lit up. So, you know what I was selling... I remember that bit, Ollie. You know what I was selling at school at the under age of 10? Tell me, mate. I was selling Coke. Oh, yeah. And... But back then we had the small... So you were getting them cheap from your old man. So that, 100%. So we'd get the crates of glass bottle Cokes and no one... Gold. You couldn't get them. So I would rock up to school and I'd be selling each individual one. Like, And that was... Yeah, Start was, of your was, entrepreneurial <clears throat> journey. I was under 10. It's gold. And yeah. and that was a... It was a big... It was a big business for me where I was saying, Dad, I need more Coke. And like he would bring it home because sometimes he'd buy extra and we'd stash all the stuff that he'd buy and so we'd have toilet paper funny that say that now but yeah, yeah, back yeah. then yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is oh, this is 20 years ago when I was at, in year 10 and how old are you now <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's got a four in front of it but anyway back then it was like you don't realize you're doing something at the time no I, there's only two other memories I've got and again my memory of my up until about the age of yesterday pretty much is gone <laughs> I can't recall anything anymore. But I had two memories uh, that stuck with me. In year 11, or maybe early year 12, when I knew we were kind of all breaking up for school, I remember my old, my old man basically said, it's not what you know, it's who you know. It gets you on in life. And so I think one of the entrepreneurial things I did is I went around everyone with a notebook at school, got wrote down their name, wrote down their number, and I wrote down what their dad did. And you'd be surprised how many people didn't, didn't want to tell me. Wow. And I was like, I didn't think anything about it at the time other than that. But for a kid to be conditioned to not talk about their parents' family, like, okay, maybe maybe, maybe, it's, so. not, maybe it's not as kosher as I thought. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, you find that a lot now. But, but I wanted to, what I wanted to do is I thought, well, if I leave school, I'll have a decent network of people that I could contact if I end up in X industry or Y industry or whatever it was. So I didn't know necessarily what I would do with it, but I knew that it, it might be valuable to do. And then the other thing is I I was always pretty creative at school, wanted to do things, wanted to uh, – I was never normal. Like I didn't want to just go through the, you know, school classes and I was – school was boring for me. Like I was too – I didn't have a, a long attention span. Um I remember asking my IT teacher at the time, I said, I said, would it be possible to, um, this is when the iPhone just came out, I reckon, or smartphones were just coming out. I said, would it be possible to talk into a device and then have it 
repeat out a different language. Ah, and he goes, impossible. Never happen, ever. And I love it because, like, obviously, IT guys back, like, this is you know, 2003, so 19 years ago. It's amazing what people thought was totally impossible is now just Google Translate. 100%. You, know, you talk to Google and it will talk back to you in a different language. Mm -hmm. And it's like, the thing wasn't around, hey, I'll, we proved him wrong. <laughs> you know, the thing was around... <laughs> Like they're probably some of the memories I think of where I was like, okay, what did I do that was entrepreneurial? But all I ever thought about when I was a kid was sport. That's all I wanted to be was an athlete. Yeah. So I, I don't really think about business too much until I got into sport. And then about two years into playing for North, I had a lot more time on my hands and I just thought about starting a business because I knew that sport was never going to make me wealthy. Um, and I knew that there was going to be a lot of time after after school. Um, sorry, after school, after after sport. And, um, you know, I... I Came up with a bunch of different ideas, cleaning businesses, yeah. basically businesses where I thought that I could get gigs from people that liked the club, yeah, um, and using my resources at the clubs to sort of springboard a business, which is ultimately what I did with NoQ. Right, NoQ was, yeah. was a good concept, a good idea, and a startup. So let's um, let's talk but about. But it was the, it was the corporate network so, of the crows that got me there. So if if we, I mean, look, I think from school, I, I, whatever I could grab my hands on, I sold. I, I I, I had a guy that could make ninja stars. Yeah, God. So they were great until some kid, some had an unfortunate accident with a pet and yeah. came back that I was the one that sold it, but there's no evidence that I sold this. No. Um, and the JP brand in the No, I didn't sold. do that. No, no. I, I, no, well, the person that did it didn't do yeah, that. Yeah, no. um, and didn't have a personal brand artist at that stage, uh, mate. No, no, not, not like I do now. No, no. But the... The other one that I, I could get back in the day, you used to get the um, porno mags. Mm. So you get that a couple's editions, black editions. Uh, Wouldn't know anything about them, but keep going. Yeah. And back then, before, this is technically before the internet, this is how you saw porn. These days, you just go to, I don't know, what's, what are the sites, Ollie? Don't pretend like you can't read them oh, off the top of your head. I've never seen anything in my life. So, they, it's, so it's, it's a bit different. Sex.com. But, but, but I could sell a couple's edition for 50 bucks back in the day at school. And what we used to do is that some of them, you rip the cover off and send the cover back and then say, look, and then I would happen to get my hands on this because they were all going back. So I'd go into one of our stores and it always used to happen before we were going up to the river. I'd go in there and take, and then I'd go and sell it. And in the end, I was getting, I was getting more sales than I had, product yeah. and we all know that's a problem yeah. good problem to have it is. supply and demand yes and that was quite a successful business yeah. like even back then i had thousands of dollars yeah, wow. saved from that and oh, trust me i was living large at the lunch at the at the the canteen you'd have had two slices of pizza to every year had a common as one slice oh, of not only that i was paying for my friends shepherd if you're ever listening to this shepherd was the only one that got us busted cuz he started paying for stuff with a grey $100 bill. <laughs> now, that was the end of the fairy tale because then we had a bit of heat come down. Well, where's all this money coming from? And the parents are like, his parents and my parents are like, well, it's not coming from us. Yeah. It was coming from Don't selling. use marked bills, mate. Come on. First well, rule of corruption. No, nah, he should have just kept on using silly. It was a, it was a poor, poor form of shepherd. It's probably why he failed year seven because that – little bit of that moment of madness cost us our whole business. I mean, I, I could have been Larry Flynn. Could could well, also save you from prison time, but you keep going. Maybe. 
so that was my big entrepreneurial success yeah, okay. back in the day. Yeah. So I, I, we've we've covered a lot of ground, but how the hell did you come up with NoQ? And I think some people wouldn't have even heard of NoQ. Do you want to explain what NoQ is in your elevator? Yeah, NoQ was <laughs> <laughs> it was Uber Eats eleven years ago. Correct. Uh, There's and, your elevator, mate. Yeah. Okay. Well, without that, the that, drivers, though, so like, we'd still rely on the drive, like Marceline, do their own deliveries. But we would effectively create an iPhone app that let you order your pizza and coffee ahead of time. So uh, when you rocked quickly. up, it was All ready. Paid for. We was totally ahead of its time. We, we we tokenized credit cards, which at the time hadn't been done very well at all. PayPal was kind of like the only go-to, but you still had to put username, password. That was before Apple's keychains yep. stored it all for you. So we had an app where you logged in once and all you did was enter a four-digit PIN and you could make a purchase. Yep. So you were literally three clicks away from ordering anything. So it was, really, it was really revolutionary at the time. But the one thing about startups is you realize that Timing is 55% of your success statistically. Um, and some could say oh, timing is everything. It is, it is. I mean, 55 is a, is a significant proportion. The other percentages are yeah. split up into who the people are, yep. the ideas sound, and how much money you got. Yep. And believe it or not, the idea is actually only about 7%. Wow. It's how much cash, are the people any good, and is it the right time? So you need a lot of things to, to make it right. And uh, and so then started, well, I first came up with the idea in a, I was sitting in the movies before an Essendon game, um, being an athlete, obviously you don't want to eat crap. So I thought, oh, I'd have Nando's, but you got to wait like 20 minutes for them to cook the chicken. I was sitting there, I, I was the first people in Australia. Was this at Marion? No, no, this was in Melbourne. Oh, um, I had in Melbourne. Nando's at Marion all the time. It was in, it was in Melbourne. Yeah. And, I, and I had the first jailbroken iPhone too. You yeah, know, I so, had a jailbroken iPhone 2 too. And I was like, this thing is really cool. Like you can imagine what you could do with this thing. And I, and I thought, well, imagine if I could just order my Nando's and just go pick it up and wait two seconds as if I'm not missed the film. And that's kind of where it started. And at the same time, I thought this iPhone could also order me a taxi. So I kind of had these two ideas. So I either start with this taxi app or I start with this food app. And then I met with one of... Uh, one of the guys ended up being a investor in the company and he gave me some good advice. He said, well, you, you're a total addressable market for taxis is four companies. Yeah. And if they all say no, you're buggered. You're a total addressable market for small businesses about 50,000. So yeah. if the first one says no, you're a good enough sales guy. I'm sure you'll get some. So I went, I went down the food route. Yeah. So even before I knew what Uber was, you know, I kind of had the concept of just solving the problem between the smartphone and what it could do. And the smartphone at that point could do so much cool stuff and so many clever ideas came out of what it could do and how it connected the whole world. And so, you know, I didn't have a clue about business at the time, but I but I knew enough about how to how to work my way around Google. Um, and, I, and I took a one-pager to uh, Rob Chapman at the Crows and just said, this is an idea I've got. What would you do with it? And he said, well, I'd go speak to... You know, John Sutton down at PKF, I'd go speak to um, Minter Ellison lawyers, I'd go speak to Alan Young down at Baker Young, stockbrokers, and these guys will put you on the right track. And I did. You know, I knocked on everyone's door and they were all really happy to speak to me because I was a Crows player. Yeah. Um, and we'd chew the fat about football for three hours and then we'd spend five minutes talking about the business. And, um, <laughs> you know, once they'd got their juicy gossip uh, of, of how the club was going and they'd give me their political opinions about what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing. Got plenty of those. Um, but it was really good because they would say, right, you need financials, you need a 
P&L. I was like, what's a P&L? What's P stand for? Like, yeah. Profit and loss. <laughs> what does EBITDA stand yeah. for? Like, so it was a crash course on finance, crash course on stockbroking, crash course on how to get this thing off the ground. And I did probably 50-odd meetings in Adelaide with all the different angel groups and investors. And every single <laughs> one of them said no. But it was good, valuable 100 hours, two-hour pitches, 50 of them. Pitched to your old man twice. Yep. You know, he said no every time. Uh, <laughs> but I forgive him for that. Because uh, yeah, he, he, no, his, son, his son benefited the Drake's family. D- don't laugh. Uh, Nothing more gratifying than saying, Dad, you know that oh, we wanted to go 50-50 on citrus? And he said, yeah. I said, oh, I'm glad you did it. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 he, yeah. He, he was shocked. I mean, that's another story, but he, yeah. he was spellbound. No, no, no. So, um, but look, it was high risk and, and, and that company didn't end up that well. Um, but at the start of it was just really trying to be industrious and use other people's uh, skill sets and advice to help get it off the ground. And then I, I literally copied another IM that I saw as I went to, you know, Alan Young and the stockbrokers and said, oh, have you got like a draft of an old IM that I could use yeah. as like a, a, a basis point, you know? IM is a? Information memorandum, which mm-hmm. is basically a capital raising document or a, what they call now a pitch deck. But an information memorandum was a lot more formal like a pitch deck kind of like here's an idea here's a concept here's kind of how we're going to go to market and IM's like A to Z so it's financials business plan it's like a hundred page document that's what you used to raise money with nowadays you just give them a five page slide deck and a presentation and people think they're going to raise cash Um, (laughs) that's easy yeah yeah it's so easy Um, but uh, yeah so ended up just (laughs) literally copying this thing almost word for word like they were totally different. What, what, I was selling, what, what were they selling? I was selling medical devices. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be oh, uh, so blase, but I was like, I, I didn't know anything about anything. I was like, what's our addressable market? I was like, well, I'll just Google like, how many shops are in the world. And, okay, so I'd, I'd figure it out step by step. And every time I went and pitched to people, they would, you know, go, have you thought about this? We're not investing because of this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. And then what it does is like, if you're a first-time founder, those 50 meetings are your education. Yeah. You know, what's the educated market saying about your product? You know, timing and everything. And I thought I had a pretty good deck because I would show like the Apple stocks going up, Google stocks going up, smartphone usage going up. So painted a very good story, but but if I look back, it wasn't enough, wasn't enough. Like the saturation wasn't enough, so a bit too early. But look, we got I got one guy in eventually. Um, you know, managed to get fifty grand off him, and then he was a pretty influential dude. So you know, once I got fifty k off him, then I went round back to the other guys that said no, and said, "Well, he's in." Yeah. And then it brought me some credibility, yeah. right? So I, I knew that I needed credibility first because I was a footballer. I was a crow. I was still playing at the crows. So you know, I went and saw lots of high-profile businessmen around Adelaide, and they. Would like the story, and you know they'd, they'd, they'd kudos for you to start your own business. But you know, I remember I remember going and seeing like Rob Gerard, and he'd go, and he's so funny. He's, he's such a funny guy, and he'd always give you such honest feedback. Oh, you know? I'd love to know what Rob and, said to you, and, and, I can imagine being bright brutal. It was uh, <laughs> uh, no, no. Look, he gave me <clears throat> an hour and a half of his time, which. If yeah. you ask anyone, that is extremely hard to get. Yep. So he was generous enough to give me that much time and a lot of, a lot of good business advice too. But the funny thing was he's still on his desk and behind him he had a stack of like IMs and a little stack about that, that big and then another stack about that big. Yeah. And he's like, 
guess which ones I've made money off. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm going to be on that one. I promise you I'm going to be on that one. And, it, and uh, you know, I won't talk about, you know, what he did in terms of like investment and stuff because it's, it's, it's private and it's his affairs. But, you know, he, he was – he was a man of his word, and uh, and uh, he was a good guy. And, and and basically, once we got once we got the ball rolling, the dominoes fell. People came in, but I don't think people came in because they necessarily thought it was a great idea. I think they came in because their friends are doing it. Yeah, yeah. they wanted to be on a board with certain people, yeah. and they wanted to rub shoulders with certain people. And and it was basically the high net worth crows posse. alumni, right? Yeah. Like po- yeah, posse, whatever you want to call them, but. So- so for you, how, how much back then, how much, uh, first of all, I would, I'm assuming they're looking going, like a football player uh, wants to do this. That, that would have been, and it's tech. Um, and we're going to build a smartphone ordering app on the iPhone 3GS. Like, and they're like, yeah. I can imagine that. What could go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> so how, how much of like what they said during that period changed the, the idea so the actual first iCar, I want something that you can order it and when you rock up, it's ready. And now we look around and that technology's everywhere, right? I, I look at it and go, fuck, you were just a little bit ahead. And when I mean yep. a little bit, I would say a year, maybe. maybe. No, we're five, I reckon. A bit, okay, a bit longer than that ahead of time where right idea, right concept, now it's everywhere well, and, and it's almost... Yeah, it's, you're right. We were probably a year, but yeah, what we should have done was started with web. And gone to mobile later. Instead of going mobile. the mobile take-up was not high enough yet. Yeah. So iPhone take-up was not as high as we thought. So unlike Menulog, who had a strong website, they were the dominant one in the market at the time. Yeah. We should have started with a website. We ended up going back to a website eventually, but yeah, it was, it was probably, that was our first pivot. But honestly, before we'd even... Oh, hang on. We've made it an hour and something, and that's the first time I've heard pivot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's the first of many. Yeah. So we pivoted before we even launched the product. So at the end of my football career, I went over to San Fran just to sort of soak up Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> How much money did you get in the initial raise? We raised a million. So $1 million. $1 million, which yep. in hindsight was nowhere near enough. <laughs> <laughs> and any, I'm any, guessing that wasn't enough. No. And any, any founder <laughs> that would come to me today and say, what do you need to do to raise capital? I would give them very, very elementary metrics. So if it's your first time, you don't know what you're doing. Yep. You, you need two and a half mil, yep. which probably means you need to give away nearly 50% of your business. Yep. But that's about right because you're asking for two and a half million off angel investors on a pretty good chance that you're not going to make it. <laughs> so your valuation should be around four mil. Typically, for a startup, three to four mil. If you're starting from scratch, which is what we were, we're starting from a piece of paper. Yep. Um, and that's a, that's a common mistake a lot of people make is what they do is they go, we'll just raise enough, like 500K. To give us a little bit of runway. To build the product, right? Yeah. But then you're in a trap then because what happens is when you, and again, a stockbroker once gave me some brilliant advice about raising the money before you build the product because raising money and off a piece of paper is often like selling someone a block of land on the beach you know they're imagining a five story with a penthouse and a luxury infinity pool and whatever it is but the minute you start building a color bond you know blue board they're going to start evaluating and going this thing's not worth as much as i thought it was so bad kind of a bad analogy but once you start building products your investors will immediately go to we'll just commercialize it first 
make some money and then I'll put money in. Yep. So that's going to market with maybe a product that's not like as Like a POC, features. right? Yeah, like a proof of concept MVP. or MVP, right? Yeah. Um, minimum viable product, which yeah. is the most terrible way to go to market. Uh, yeah. Because in this, it was fine 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But these days, there are, there are I think I heard the stat, 175,000 startups start every day. So whatever you're doing, whatever you think you're doing, if you think it's unique, you're wrong. It's not. Like yeah. the difference between companies that make it and don't make it is the speed at which they operate at. You got to burst out into market, and you got to get ahead of the market quickly, and you got to just sprint, never float with momentum. Like just go hard, hard, hard. And so by raising a small amount of cash, what you end up doing is you end up building this MVP. You can't pay yourself a salary, so you can't concentrate fully on the business. You're stressed about money, and then the first thing you do is you burn through that cash. And what do you do? You go straight back to your investors and go back for more money. For more, and they go, "Well, you said you'd do this, you didn't do it. We're going to hurt you with valuation. We're going to take more of the money." So, so then, okay, so the investors end up getting more. Yep. For less. Yep. But and and then they'll drip feed a, it to you. Yeah. And, and then, so then you're constantly raising money. And so where you should be focused on building your business, you're focused always on raising the next round. Which is a which is a trap founders fall into a lot. So you're better off spending more time because it does take time to raise cash, raising a larger amount up front. Because what you want to buy is you want to buy eighteen months worth of runway at a pretty fully loaded expenditure plan. Yeah, not not a best case because the first thing founders think about is best case scenario. Optimism. <laughs> Yeah. Kills everyone, mate. <laughs> which, which is why, which is why Silicon Valley investors say I don't want to invest in anyone that's done two startups at least because you, you, you're too optimistic. You haven't had the shit kicked out of you yet, you know. Oh, and it's shit. but it's true because like the way I look at my second business versus my first is my first. I was the eternal optimist. I was like, no, we can do it for this, and we can do it for that. And yeah. We can do, we can achieve these great things. And you learn about forecasting and incorrectly forecasting. And then my second business, it was. Very pragmatic. It was, okay, we could do this, but I'm going to plan for a quarter of that. And so we raised enough money in the second business. I'm skipping forward a little bit, but just to kind of give you the start of both. We raised like two mil in the start of the first, second one. And we were way more equipped to build. We knew exactly what we were going to build, how we were going to build it. We knew we had the right people and we knew how to get to market much, much faster, which is why Citrus was went from like zero to you know, a couple hundred million in, in four years yeah. because we because we'd done it before. Like we'd built, um, we'd learned all the hard lessons before. So that's the first mistake founders make is they don't just don't raise enough cash. Yeah. So you need to raise cash. You need to raise cash. You have to. And and if no other reason, what other happens than, if I'm just filthy rich? What what happens if I just well not filthy rich? Let's just say you're like me. So you've got money, but you're not filthy rich. Well, and what? Is it is See, it beneficial for me you. to put my own money in and go? Well, it's no. why why is it not? You know, if it's my money. Like I'm going to treat it better than your money, or am I? Okay, so there's two there's two things there. So we talk about you as the founder, or we could talk about you as the okay. investor. Yeah, in okay. Right? Let's say I'm a founder of a new, you know, a new a new product that's you know coming to market. Okay, cool. Uh, it's a, that's a bit of a cheat for me because yeah. in supermarkets, I could no, no, force no. in some. Yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. let's say it's outside of supermarkets. Yeah, okay, right. it's tech. Yeah, okay. So the first thing I would look at or the first thing as a VC, me personally, would criticize you with is what makes you unattractive as a founder is the fact that you are wealthy, right? Yeah. And so when the going gets tough and shit gets real hard, you got a plan B. Yeah, I can. And you're say, like, you know oh, what, man? It. It's not worth it. Yeah, I'm going to go yeah. back to my cushy life, my cushy house, and yeah. I'm I'm good. 
Uh, whereas founders that are got no safety nets, they're the ones you want because they're the ones that don't have a choice. You know, they're more likely to stick it out. Now, that's not saying that's true for everyone. Yeah, it's 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 what you've seen. It's it's what I've seen, and I can tell you from my own experience, there are times where I wanted to give up, um, and for sometimes it was sheer luck that I didn't. And sometimes it was my family that pulled me around or my co-founder or someone else would help give me a pat on the back or kick up the ass. But ultimately, it was because I had no choice. If I gave it up, I was a I was a second-time failed startup founder and I would have just been seen as a, just a failure over and over again, a repeat failure, to be honest. And yeah. so to me, that outlook was not good. And then I would have had no job, no money, income, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, so – and you do see a lot of these side hustles, right? You see a lot of people that want to be entrepreneurs, that want to be founders and CEOs. And I don't know why, but you've always got to ask about why, why are you doing it, right? Is it you want to get off on the power? Or do you want the title? Everyone and his dog's got the CEO title now and they're a two-person business. It's like, well, yeah. you're the chief executive of, of one person. Like, you know, <laughs> there was once upon a time where you were called a small business owner, you know? Um, <laughs> or... or, or, or you know what I mean? Like, so, and everyone wants to call themselves a founder and stuff like that. And it's like, well, I, I get it. And I love people's aspiration for wanting to do something. But are you a founder that's prepared to put everything on the line and, and, and put your, put everything that you maybe not own because most founders aren't wealthy, but. Like, oh, it could be but it's just your, your reputation. Or, you know, it's like, all of these things. For me, second time around, it was my reputation. It, it was. And that was what scared me most about starting the second one. Um, the first one, I was kind of just went into it. As most first-time founders should and do go in, they go in with blind optimism of you've got no idea what's about to hit you. You go in with this kind of uh, this is going to be fun and it is fun to start with. The product stage is fun. The, the creative stage is fun. Then when you get to market and you get to the grind and you got to employ staff, you got to fire staff, you got to get the financials, you got to report to your shareholders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like developers. Things don't go your way. You yeah. got to pivot five times before you get to an actual product that works. You got to travel overseas every two weeks. You got to do 15 hour trips to the US. I did four one day trips to the US when I was at NoQ. Wow. Uh, even at the end when I knew I was going to get sacked, I did it because I wanted the company to be successful. I flew to Boston, I did a day trip to Boston. So I flew from Adelaide to Sydney, Sydney to LA, LA to Boston. I, it was a 34-hour journey. I arrived in Boston at 5 a.m. I did the meeting at 8, 8 till 10, and I flew back at 11. So, you know, you do crazy stuff to, to, to try and be successful. And coming back to your original point around like self-funding or not self-funding, I believe that we always got asked, you know, what are you putting in? Yeah. You know, as angels always do. They're like, well, what, 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 what risk what, are you yeah. taking, right? And at the time, you know, we didn't have anything to give. <laughs> uh, uh, the idea, my time. I know, uh, yeah. My blood, sweat, and tears. They, my they, mental health. Uh, <laughs> compromising every part of my body and brain for the next five years so you can be rich. But no, that doesn't have that. <laughs> Did you just say that? That doesn't have any value at the start, right? Because you're, you're talking to investors. Um but no, in in, in, in NoQ, I, I, I did put in a couple hundred grand of my own money, um, but that's that, that was my super, and that's all I had, and you know that's the kind of thing. But with with Citrus, I didn't have any 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 savings, so I didn't put it in. But my argument to that was, look, what I bring to the table is I'm going to go and execute this, you know, and I'm going to, and I, t- I signed a very, I'm sure you probably didn't read it, the shareholders agreement. <laughs> 
I signed a very, very harsh shareholders agreement, you know, because the second time round when I went to pitch to guys, the first thing they said was like, well, you're a failure. You got booted out of your last company. Like, that doesn't look good on paper, mate. Like, you're not looking good right now. Like, And you want me to give part with my hard earned so you can go do it again? Uh, so I was coming off the back foot big time and I sort of said, look, yes, it was not the greatest ending, but let's spin another way. I've learned a lot of lessons. I believe that there's a market here we can execute on. I can use all those lessons and those failings to turn it into a success. And, uh, you know, eventually they backed me, but it, it was it was definitely a hard sell both times. Um, but coming back to you, you know, like founders putting their own money in, I don't disagree with it um, if you back something enough, but if your business plan is good enough, there is enough cash out there to fund it. Yeah. You know, and that's part of the problem. People people go, oh, bootstrap it, right? So, Brad, no IQ. How long was no IQ going for? And what were some of the signs that you picked up that things weren't going right? Or did you not see any signs? That's we, a, yeah, that's yeah. A bit of a lack. <laughs> I've got to tell you, that's a pretty loaded question, but... I want you to talk about NoQ. I've got my ideas of what happened because yeah. evidently that's how I met you. Yeah. So yeah. for me, seeing uh, I first met you through NoQ, you were selling software for NoQ. Yeah, I, I said peddling before, but you didn't like that term. But um, <laughs> but that you showed a fucking slick piece of equipment, piece of software, and it was no doubt slick. And the only reason you didn't really get the deal from that time is because that time you wanted a volume of or whatever and the, the option we went through didn't do that, which was great for us, probably not so good for them. So that's how I met you through NoQ. How long did NoQ go for and when did you started to notice things were not quite right? Because you pivoted pretty hard with NoQ as well because you went from the, this product yeah, yeah, that was yeah. – so you went from a product that, hey, you can get coffees or food there and then so you didn't have to wait, mm. and then you literally pivoted to e-commerce. Yep. So – No, we pivoted a lot, and there's unpacking six years. I'll try and keep succinct because I could be here yeah, for I, a I week. Yeah, ga- I gather that, um, um, and you might you might fade away if we're here this long. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, we've yeah, got a little true. bit of fruit, yeah. some water, and Red Bull. Oh, the Red Bull's appealing, yeah. but uh, the fruit – you got some figs in there, mate, but uh, Red Bull will give me wings and no, I keep going. Okay, so we, we will get through. We will. Um, yeah, so look, cit- oh, citrus. No so you go- I, I'll, I'll paint a quick picture. You've gone from a football player, got some money raised, albeit a very small amount of money in the scheme of things, with some influential people around the Crows, and then all of a sudden they all want their money and it just doesn't pan out the best for them. Oh, so, no, no, no. no. So, okay. so they were they backed me in all the way. Yep. Um, so one of the things I learned straight away was in my first round, I gave away 60% of the company. 60? Yeah. Okay, so, so you- I gave away controlling share yep. from the get-go. But I knew to get these guys to trust the plan and the business that they ultimately had to have control. And most founders will not give that up and probably shouldn't. But, I, you know, I was a footballer. I mean, if I was them, I would never have given me control. Yeah. That would have been a ludicrous idea. Yeah. No business experience, never worked a job in my life. All I'd done is kick a ball around for the last seven years. And I got this startup idea that's kind of futuristic. You know, so it was, it was smart of them to do what they did. And they were very easy to handle and cruisy for a long period of time. Um, 
and it's easy for me to look back immediately after I got, you know, shown the door from No Q and look back with a lot of resentment. But when I look back sort of six years on, you know, I, I see things in a lot more balanced approach, you know. So I was angry, I was frustrated when we finished. Obviously, I was heartbroken. It was my baby that I'd built and um, it was all I'd ever known. And and, you, and when you have it ripped away from you, you kind of feel, you know, a bit soul destroying, right? So it didn't end well, and I and I certainly ended uh, that journey of my life in a very, uh, in a very bad way, both physically, mentally, um, and it took a significant amount of time and work to pick myself up off the canvas. But it wasn't always like that. You know, and, and, and I was a large part of the reason why I got to that point. So the thing that educated me for, for Citrus and, and life in general and some things you can talk about, you know, I don't necessarily believe I'm that successful, but, but that's just generally my own insecurities talking, not necessarily what people from the outside would think. But I don't believe I'm that successful. I, I don't believe I'm that special. I, but newspapers will tell you otherwise, but I don't believe it, you know, even though on paper it sort of says it. Um, but I guess the, the, the insecurities are good because they make you always look in the mirror first. So, you know, when I started my second company, I was all, and wherever we ran into troubles, I was like, okay, what did I do wrong? What could I do have done better? It's really easy to look at hiring staff and going, oh, that, that, that person was shit at what they did or they caused it. It's like, well, I hired them. Yeah. You know, how much research did I do? How much education did I give them? How much guidance did I give them? You know, so... You know, I look back and like talking about the business itself and I can talk about sort of the emotional damage political side if you want, but the, the business itself, I said, we pivoted before we even hit the market. So I went over to Silicon Valley and I had an idea. I was sitting there listening to the head of Oracle talk and then the, the there was a keynote with the guy that started Zynga Games, which was Angry Angry Birds, but Farm Farmville? Farm animals. Farm film. Now where they bought, where you buy bits of the farm and he was like a billionaire overnight. It was like the first <coughs> Facebook game. Um, was it Farmville? Not Farmville. Oh, no, Farmville. Yes. Is it Farmville? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Ollie, was, Zynga um, games. Ollie Zynga games. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, went over there and immediately thought because a lot of, we'd been selling it before going to market, and a lot of the chains that we'd speak to, like Chibo and like all the different coffee shops and all the different pizza stores and chains and stuff, would be like, "Oh, we love the product, but we don't want like, your brand on it. Like, we don't want NoQ. We want our brand on it." And I was like, oh, no, nah, but we've got the customers. And you know, I was just sort of pretty stubborn. <laughs> but I was over in the US and I was like, we need to white label this straight away because that seemed to be the major resistance. So when I got back, I basically said to the developers, scrap everything we're doing, we're going to white label it and we're going to sell it as their software. And then when we did, immediately overnight, we started to get traction. Yeah. So, you That's know, when Cafe. Huge you know, Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, they, they, we went from being business to consumer and business to business. Yeah. which I can tell you, anyone that's launching something like that, you need a marketing budget of 10 to 15 mil just to get off the ground, even in Australia. Because you've got to convince consumers to, to use your product yep. and then you've got to convince businesses to use it as well. So you've got to do two sales efforts, which is mammoth for a startup. And with a million dollars in the bank and we'd spent half of it on, the, on building the product, it was never going to work. So we pivoted to a B2B model, which is a lot cheaper, a lot more cost effective and you can scale a little bit better. Um, but we just found there was very little money in coffee, you know, cents in the dollar. You need billions of transactions to go through and we just weren't there. So then we sort of started to go towards, 
like takeaway like pizza stores and pizza chains and we won a few big sort of national deals like noodle box and a few others that made us a bit of money um we, we won a global tender with westfield wow. out of westfield labs in san fran which is our big kind of scalp yeah um and we won that because we had the best mobile tech they'd seen globally so you know that's a little tick for adelaide's tech community and a bit tick for fusion who are the adelaide developers that helped us build it uh, and john chaplin who was a major driver of 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 that build albeit they built it for probably a quarter of what they should have built it for because uh, I didn't realize how big the bill was. But uh, but the <laughs> F- Fusion were awesome in, in bringing it to market because we didn't have our own developers. So they basically, you know, I walked into one agency and they basically gave me, you know, three hours of why it wasn't going to work in gray walls and how every startup fails and you're 99.9% going to fail. So I walked out thinking, oh, fuck this. <laughs> <laughs> And then luckily I went into, into Fusion's offices where it's the you know, orange walls and table tennis tables and meeting John Chaplin for the first time and, and they and they coined him in the in the in the office. They used to call him yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause like he'd never say no to anything. And uh, So Fusion, where's that place? Uh, they were uh, they were in Rundle Street. Yeah, they're in Adelaide. Yeah, they are in Adelaide. Yeah. They got acquired by WPP, I think, in KWP. the WP. Nah, WPP. WPP. A little bit bigger than KWP. But uh <laughs> They're the holding group, but uh, worldwide holding group for um, a lot of the um, big agencies. Anyway, so um, started the product, um, pivoted, realized that was the market, and then we sort of fell into grocery uh, because a bloke next door to my old man's real estate business was in in groceries and on IGA, and you know the. They got talking. Oh, my son builds apps. Yeah, I can <laughs> oh, imagine. I can imagine that yeah, conversation. Yeah. Oh, technology, <laughs> the internet. You know, well, you should speak to my son. Uh, so, <laughs> so we ended up talking, and um, and then they're like, so we'd been used to selling this thing for I don't know, twenty five bucks a month, or yeah. fifty bucks a month, or a hundred bucks a month, and and this supermarket guy comes out and says, oh, I'll give you a hundred grand to build something. I'm like, we're in the wrong industry. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I was like, okay, we'll build it. How can it be? It's just products on a page and ordering, and and then started the the mission of trying to turn our platform into a grocery platform, which I can tell you was really really hard because we weren't building a website or an ordering platform. We were building a point of sale translation system that took point of sale shitty data and turned it into usable readable data on a website so you would know being in the grocery space mate that pos used to run off coca-cola was like c stroke cla yeah. 2l that meant coca-cola <coughs> two liter but if you take that and put it online you can't search for it so we ended up building this like <laughs> mate, yeah, we descriptions oh my god it sounds so simple and coke were like why are we on the fourth page like because you're alphabetically on the fourth page <laughs> a a root cola is number one mate <laughs> <laughs> uh, so and that is even what you came when you actually presented for for Nokia. It actually that's how it worked. It yeah, was it, was. it was alphabetical order. Yeah, because and that's how everyone did it. Um, because we weren't sophisticated enough to come up with any algorithms at that point, and we just we were barely getting the products to the page. Like if you could search for a product and find it, that was a tick. <laughs> you, were, you were you were fucking miles ahead of everyone else in the industry. Oh, Damn. Yeah, so so there was that problem we had to solve, and then every of course every grocer then puts their own codes in for fresh fruit. So we're like, thanks all you fucking IGAs for why can't you all say apples? Granny Smith, the fucking eight three one two, right? Why do you <laughs> have global. to? Why do you all have to have individual ones? And so we're there trying to go like, 
oh my God, is it us? Or is it like, is, is this really happening? And then we're like, no, it's really happening. So then we had to, <laughs> we ended up building most of our time, this translation system, taking all these independent IGA point of sale feeds and trying to match them to something that was usable. And then we took, we became a photography company because no one had any images of anything. Oh my God. So it was like That's fun. Amazing. <laughs> and then once we crossed that bridge, which we still never crossed because we were still trying to figure it out as we were going because then we went to the US and the fun started again because nothing matched over here. Every yeah. barcode is different. It's totally different over there. And then, uh, and then we're like, oh, actually all the retailers care about is profit and how quickly they can pick orders. So yeah. geez, we better pick a, we better build a picking out. Yeah. And that's what we did. We built an exceptional picking out there. And it, it, was, it, it was very good. Top notch. Even to this day, yeah. I look at all the e-commerce providers that we yeah. work with as Citrus and go, app, app is still better. Yeah. Like, because people, they don't understand the visual side of it. So what we built was a picture on an iPad that when you're a, when you're a 14, 15-year-old picker walking around a store, are you going to read some text and then try and find an item or are you going to see a big picture of a red can of like, you know, baked beans and go, oh, that's what I'm looking for. So people yeah. are so visually aware. Anyway, yeah, 100%. so we pivoted and then, and then we actually started to get some traction. We'd found our space. So Nick and I, you know, we said, okay, the Australian market's really small. Like we're not going to get Woolies and Coles. And the IGAs were, were okay, but we couldn't build a big business just off the independence. Um, yeah, and it, tough to deal with too. They, they were. I mean, uh, there's a group in South Australia quite big that was a nightmare. Trying to sell to this young bloke who was supposed to be in tech, you know, thought he knew everything about technology oh and e-com. And he's there trying to grill me about how a fucking e-commerce system should work. I'm like, mate, who's the expert here? Me or you? <laughs> I wouldn't have oh. fucking done that just for the record. But no, nah, but the first meeting on. we did have, you did give me a hard time, but it's about anything and everything. So you're an interesting character to deal with to try and sell to. But uh, I think I tamed the wild beast that was JP of seven uh, years ago. It was that long ago. Yeah, it was pretty long ago. Um because I was hounding your dad and I was like, come on. No, Roger. Wrong, wrong person. But I said, this is, this is, you need to be in this space. Yeah. And he goes, go see JP. Yeah. And I went to see you. Oh, and hey, then, you know. I wouldn't want to see it at all. And uh, I won't mention a few names I spoke to. But, yeah, uh, there would have been plenty. There was a few that so were just you, like, oh, mine's never going to take off. I was like, eh, it might. It could. <laughs> like COVID's just around the corner. <laughs> 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 like that internet, you know, they could switch it off one uh, day. That Google thing, um, <laughs> that's that's short lived. Um, so so let so you're you're you've got this new product. So yeah, we finally got traction. Yeah. We went to the US. We just, you know, did the what seemed obvious, but to not many people very obvious. We just Googled like what's the uh, equivalent of Metcash in the US. Yep. Called them and said, okay, we were we're this. We're an e-commerce provider. Is there any shows coming up where we can come out? You know, and they go, oh, there's a show coming up, um, NGA in, in February. I remember all this. And this too. was like four four weeks before the show. Yeah. And they're like, well, it's four weeks before the show. There's no way you're going to get a stand built. I'm like, oh, we can do it tomorrow. So now we ended up building this, like, it looked like an Apple store in a flea market. Like, honestly, it was like, an, it was like the Apple store in a bazaar. <laughs> it was brown carpet, brown curtains, you know, Midwestern sort of, white males who are in their 60s walking around looking at pots and pans and freezers. Yeah. You know, and we were there trying to <laughs> in online shopping. They're just like, who the fuck are these Aussie guys, man? <laughs> like, these guys are either really smart or nuts. And uh, we were a bit of both. Yeah. And, uh, and so we went there and we, we jagged one customer and it was Super Value who were a massive wholesaler. Massive. And they, they took a liking to us. 
because you know we sold them the dream and yeah, yeah we showed them the one IGA store that we had live at the time <laughs> <laughs> it didn't even work properly they weren't happy with us at the time so oh, shit. but you know smoke and mirrors never got in the way of a good business plan um <laughs> But look, we knew our stuff, right? We knew what we wanted to build anyway. And so there, there started our US venture. We moved over there. I moved over there and, and we started to build it. And, and, you know, the shareholders were a little bit reluctant to kind of go over there because they didn't know the market. And yeah. well, to be honest, we didn't know the market, but we started to get traction. And I sort of said, look, there, there's the future, not here, not in Australia. And um, eventually went over, you know, started to build a bigger business. We, we hired some US staff, including a US CEO. Um, you know, to lead the business, which kind of made sense to me. It didn't make sense at the time because I'm like, I'm leading this business from the front. It's I know mine. everything about yeah. the tech, the industry, how to talk to clients, customers, the staff. But from from obviously from from a shareholder's point of view, you go, okay, well, when does a 28 year old hand over the reins and to someone who's more seasoned and who's done it before? And that makes total sense, right? And it happens a lot in in, in businesses. And so I was I was quite happy because I was pretty burnt out at that stage to go. You know what? Someone else wants to be the CEO. I was be the product guy because that's what I enjoy doing. Yeah. And anyway, um, it, it was just a lot of like arguments about what was the right thing to do. You know, I, I wanted to go much, much harder at the market and just try and take land. And you know, m maybe we weren't ready to take the land. Maybe we were. I don't know. Like, it's hard to say who was right and who was wrong. But and then eventually, you know, I, I just, I just, I just ground these guys down. Like, you know, they got sick of me, and I would have too. Like, I was a bullish, arrogant prick that just said what I thought when I thought it and that didn't resonate too well in the boardroom to be honest and I look back and that was part of my uh, definitely one of my flaws was just not holding my tongue enough and you know I irritated the, the few too many people a few too many times and whether I was right or I was wrong in the end it didn't matter because too many bridges were burnt and it was unworkable yeah. so it was either all them or me. Yeah. And, you know, they made the right call. So they ditched you. Yeah. They well, sent yeah, you yeah, to look much. after Australia. Yeah. Is that, that's, yeah. So, that's so, what I, I so I kind of come, I came back to Australia because there was a little bit of tension in the US office between sort of me and the, and the new executive <laughs> team, which which always happens. You know, you got you got a CEO coming in with a founder there. So, you know. Yeah, they, you do. They immediately kind of feel like you're always going to be in the way, right? Because you're the emotional champion of the business. And so they've got to come in with you around and try and assert their dominance as, as the new the new boss. And it's very difficult with someone like me around too, who's just not a pushover and I'm not dumb and, and I'll call a spade when I see one. And so it's probably better for me to leave that environment. I went back to Australia to run the product and then, you know, um, well, a few things happened in between, just like logistical stuff, and then eventually it was like, you know what, we need to change. Things See you aren't, later. Yeah, things, so are, things aren't going. Are you we still? Want. Uh, have you got any shares in? Yeah, yeah, I still have all those shares, but but I, but I had so much PTSD at the end that I just kindly asked them to remove me from the shareholders list and just say, look, good, bad, indifferent, whatever it is, like it's a period of my life that I don't want to revisit again. Yeah. Let bygones be bygones. Let sleeping dogs lie. I made a ton of mistakes. I'm going to own those. Um, I was hard to work with. I was not a great CEO at times. Um, I had good ideas and good good aspirations, but I wasn't a good business leader at the time. Like I learned a lot of things the hard way and made yeah. a lot of errors along the way. So um, I think quite a lot of people were happy to see me 
burn at the end. You know, I got quite a lot of abusive messages on LinkedIn from ex-employees are like, oh, finally fell on your sword, did you, mate? Like, so, you know, so to have those, they were brutal <coughs> and, they, and they stung a lot. But I reflect now and think, yeah, no, I, I, I could have been better. Yeah. I could have been better. But like, no one's perfect. You know? No. But- and so, yeah, so I left the shares. Um, Nick was obviously still a shareholder too. He would get the kind of monthly, quarterly recaps, whatever they were. But for me, to even just to see the name was like a bullet. And, and so I, I just couldn't do it. It was so much, so much PTSD at the end of that business. Um, and, and I realized that I'd lost the plot about a year before I left because I was. Uh, I remember driving home from Next Gen after trying to work out and work at the same time and I ended up started thinking I was having a heart attack. So I had atrial fibrillation, which is caused from basically high amounts of stress. I drove myself to the ED and they're basically like, you're, you're stressed, you've got an irregular heart, you've got this wrong with your heart as well, an underlying condition is probably not good for you to stress as much as you do. You need to start to wind back, otherwise you're going to end up dead. So the next morning I flew off to the US. You know, it was, uh, didn't really care too much about my body at the time, but that was the first signal to say, the stress is starting to catch up with you. And when you're mentally tough, like athletes are mostly, you just push through the pain barrier. It's, it's always the mentality, push through the pain barrier. But the problem is, is you can push through it mentally, but eventually your body will go, you know what, I've had enough. And I'm, yeah. I'm going to tell you that you're, you're, you're knackered now. Um, and then I just started having panic attack after panic attack, anxiety went through the roof, massive amounts of depression, the waves up and down. So... You know, I'm not proud to say that I was on a lot of medication when I finished up there, but I was like, you know, it was, but I needed it just to get through the day, mm. you know, to operate, to function. And, um, you know, and, and I got to a point in my life where I was like, that's not healthy. Um, and I realized that at the end and I thought, well, a lot of these things are causing triggers for me. And I said, look, I've just got to cut it all off. Can't talk to anyone again from there. Just, just for now, like even the good people, yeah. I was just like, you just got to give me a few years. Just you know, I, I can't deal with this now. So, so anyway, so 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 from there, I um, basically gave up the house in Glenelg, which we were renting. Broke the lease, luckily through financial kind of you know reasons. Uh, moved back in with my parents, um, and then started the job hunt. You know, I started job hunting in Brisbane. Um, went to like five recruiters, of which we all Citrus uses now and pays a lot of money to. <laughs> And every one of them sort of said, oh, you're a bit unemployable, mate, <laughs> in the nicest possible way. We'll go speak to uh, NoQ guys and get some references. Yeah, 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 exactly right. Uh, so, yeah, I didn't have a lot of good references and had a weird skill set. So it's like, you know, um, I wasn't corporate and, and in jobs where I was kind of suited to, so like e-com within, you know, fast food chains and stuff like that, I was – seen as maybe a little bit overqualified and maybe I'd ruffle a bit of feathers and I don't know, but I was just unemployable. Uh, so it is like that, unemployable. So oh, I was, it was pretty humbling after sort of 50 job interviews that you start to think, oh, and, and they weren't all like, I wasn't trying to chase a big salary. Like some of them were like low salary stuff because I was thinking, you know what I'll do? I'll just get in and I'll work my way up. Like I'll just get in at the ground, show that I'm decent and I'll work my way up. But I just, you couldn't get past the HR departments because they just had a strict criteria of ticking a box. Yeah. 
I just right. didn't tick any of the boxes. Yeah, yeah I, I ticked the one at the at the back that goes like date, damaged goods. Date, you know, date, date, hire, volatile tick. at best. <laughs> <laughs> at best, he's going to come in and ruffle all the executives' feathers and tell you what a bad job you're doing. So, so you know, I, I'm very. It was a very humbling experience. And then, uh, you know, Nick and I got together, and 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 you know, Nick wasn't doing that well either, and he was a, a lot older than me. He's sort of, you know. I forget how old he is now. He wouldn't want me to say. He's but probably old. He's, just, he's older he's than me. So he is an old man. Nick's a very old man. He's got more hair than you, don't it? It's okay. It's not about how much hair you've got. Um, Far out, you know. I'm mentally got a bigger young, bank than you that's now, That's my wife's <laughs> Mate. What did I say to him yesterday? I said, every million dollars in your bank takes a year off your life, mate. So, yeah, you know, you're in your teens again. <laughs> so, uh. Nick would be loving that. Anyway, how did you come up with Citrus then? Like, did you actually think, fuck, I can't get a job? I, I, I need to run something else. I, I, how long is this time frame here where you've, you know, got some time to yourself? Your wife's then going, Brad, you need to get a job. <laughs> like, yeah, you, you yeah, need yeah, to help yeah. this family. Uh, what sort of period of time was it? Yeah, no, you do feel a lot of guilt as well, sort of being being selfish and running a startup for a long period of time, but which is about your dream, not your family's dream, really. And then you sort of have a humbling experience where you get fired and you sort of got to move on. And I didn't want to do another startup if you paid me. Like, if you paid me a million dollars to start it, I just did not want to borrow it. Not at all. Like, Brad, I've got a good idea. Yeah, no chance. Man. Like, this is why people now they go to like people get nervous as I did when I first started. No cue. Like, <coughs> God, I've got a really good idea, but I don't want to tell you in case you go do it. I'm yeah. like, man, I am the last person in the world that is going to take your idea and do it right now because I know what the journey is ahead. So it could be the best thing ever. It could be the next Bitcoin. It could yeah. be you know the next Google. So I wouldn't do it even if you gave it to me. So, um, so I think for me it was more just about my wife sort of just saying, look, every door is closing for a reason. Yeah. You know, the one will open, you know. And so that's what Well Nick and I got together probably what did we go for? We got fired on, you know, August 30, 9.38 AM. Oh, not shit. not, not that you fucking kept track of that. No. How'd you get fired? Was it a phone call? No, it was just a meeting with the two directors. It was a meeting they were, said they were really nice. They just said, look, you know, you know it's time, we know it's time. Um uh-huh. time, time to move on. Yeah. I said, yep, yeah, no worries. <clears throat> Thanks. Um it was very amicable and they helped me amicably get out of the company and it was fine. Well, I knew it was coming. Like, I didn't know it was coming for a year. I mean, yeah. to be honest, I got to the end and I'm like, well, I'm surprised I lasted this long. Yeah, okay. You oh, know, um, but look, uh, Citrus was an afterthought big time. Like we, I did not want to start a startup because I just knew what I'd just gone through. I was thinking if this is any, like, why would you go through it again? Like, yeah. Why would you do that six years again? Mm-hmm. Like best case, you come out of it with a few million bucks. Like best case. Yep. Worst case is you're a two-time failure that's lost the better part of his 20s and 30s yep. with two kids that you've neglected and, and, and a wife that you've neglected. So to me, there was a significant amount of risk just even contemplating a startup. And like you've always got good ideas, right? The ideas are 10 a penny. No offense to anyone out there with an idea, but I, they say statistically 95% of people have a good idea in their yep. lifetime, right? But it's not about the idea. Like when you work with grocers all the time, like we could see, like looking back at Citrus, sorry, Citrus, looking back at NoQ, like we started to work out, okay, why, why do we have such a hard job selling that? Like, so we started to dissect NoQ a bit and yeah. go, well, what would we have done differently and what would we have done maybe better or whatever it may be? And 
And so we knew retail really well and we knew the grocery industry really well. And, you know, we had this idea where we could try and monetize the shelf space. And there was already a competitor out in the marketplace doing it called Hook Logic that got bought by Critio, who are now sort of our major competitor. I mean, Hook Logic had been around since 2011 selling online ad space. Wow. So it wasn't the fact that we were doing something that was totally innovative from a conceptual point of view, but it was about execution. Yep. And so we said, well, what if we could build the kind of Google AdWords of the like making it super easy for advertisers, the self-serve aspect, and build Stripe.com, which is an API for payments, yep. and kind of mesh those together and, and build it in a way that's going to just overrun the market, you know, with all the competitors that are out there at the moment. Yep. Um, and that's what we set out to build. We set out to build something that was super easy to integrate and and, and, and solved a problem. The biggest problem we, saw, we thought with, with e-commerce and supermarkets was it was cost. It was cost heavy. You know, yeah. so you'd know being in grocery, very low. You're still margin. burning, probably still burning money. Yeah, totally. Very low margin. Like selling a fridge yep. or selling, you know, TV has got a far bigger chunk of money in it than selling a can of baked beans yep. and, and some bread. Yeah. So at best, most grocery operators are around two to three percent operating profit, right? Yeah. 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 And the average order size online, let's say, it's a hundred bucks around numbers. So you're, you're operating at $2 there when the person comes into your store, picks it themselves, and then checks out, even yeah. by themselves now too. So <clears throat> with the cost of online, you've got to pay one of your staff, which is typically going to take upwards of an hour to go around and pick. Maybe they're fast and pick two in an hour, so it's half an hour. So it's gonna, yeah, we, get, let's say they get paid $10 an hour, just for argument's sake. That's five bucks. So you're down $3. That's before you put it on the truck, the refrigerated truck, which is probably costing you $30 an hour to run yep. in fuel and the leasing costs. So anyway, money pit. 100%. So I, I think I, I, we, we've got to, we reckon we lose around $11 every order. Yeah, that probably makes sense. So that's yep. that's what ours is. Yeah, Tesco were quoted as saying it was like equivalent of 20 bucks. Yeah. But it was the market share they would build doing it and, and getting that customer attention and the, and the data to eventually use, right? Yeah. So, you know, we, we thought, well, what if we knew that brands bought like in-store shelf space or they pay for end caps and they pay for the middle yeah, shelf? Well, it, it, well, and they do. Like supermarkets, uh, you pay for eye level, yep. uh, anywhere in that eye level, um, front displays, you know, gondola ends, um, fridges at the front of shops. Yep. Like all, everything you see at a supermarket, well, it should be, is there for a reason. Correct. People um, think it's not by design. But uh, it's just by luck. Design. The dude... <laughs> Built it, or she built it there, so that's why it's there. Not yeah, yeah, quite. Yeah, exactly. So you know, Google AdWords is no different, right? People click. People don't get past the first page of Google. In fact, people don't statistically <coughs> get past the first three links in Google. So you know, we kind of married all that up together and said, okay, we're we're solving numerous problems here. Retailers don't want to get into online because they're burning cash. Yeah. Brands want to put their products at the top of page one. Yeah, not in alphabetical not order. Not in alphabetical order. <laughs> Or, or whatever order yep. someone else decides. Yeah, volume. Um, yep. And and then we decided just to do it better than the, the, than than Hook Logic and Critio at the time, right? Or try and do it better than them. So I shouldn't say we did it better, but we tried to do it in a different way. And and they were only in America; they hadn't quite come to Australia around the world yet. So so anyway, so we put a pitch deck together, and it was basically like three pages. It was a picture of a physical shelf and a picture of a digital shelf, and we said that's going to turn into that eventually. And I said to Nick, like. I'll do one round of, of investors. I'll do a few meetings and if there's no bites, we're done. Like, I don't want to do this again. Yeah. 
So of course the first bloke we meet, it's like this is great. I mean, two hundred grand, here you go, and I'll help you raise the rest. So then started the fucking journey. So like I was like, okay, well, I guess we're in then. Um, <laughs> I guess we're doing this. This is it. This first is it. guy got lucky. Pretty much. Yeah. Literally first guy. And then, uh, but he knew a bit about this. He knew a bit about the the, the story that we'd been on. He, he was one of Nick's dad's mates. He'd known about us for a while and known that what we'd been through and all sort of stuff. And but uh, and that was kind of like March. So it was about seven months on from no cue. So it was a long time between drinks. So sort of kind of stressing about having no money and all sort of stuff. And then we started it and we 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 got off the ground, raised a couple million bucks. Again, structured it differently so that we had controlling interest this time around. But we had to give up basically, you know, our, our firstborn in the contract. We basically said that we weren't ever allowed to pay a rise ever, even if the business was doing well. So how much did you and Nick pay yourselves? Uh, about a hundred grand each. Yeah. yeah. So enough to support a family of four. Yeah. And live okay. But we, you know, we weren't living the high life. That's for sure. Um, and then. You know, we, we basically um, got off the ground. We recruited, built the product, um, got lucky, got really lucky early days with some of the re recruits that we had. So we hired a good CTO. We hired a really good first engineer, first few engineers. So we basically built the Citrus product with with five guys. Yeah. So we were taking on Google, Microsoft, Critio. These companies have got market caps of, you know, trillions with teams of 20,000 and often we'd always get asked like, well, how big's your tech team? Yeah. And we're like, fuck, oh <laughs> <laughs> How many? Uh, well, if you include our offshore team, it's about 50 something or other. I forget the last time I checked, you know. Uh, it's like, you know, <laughs> offshore team. 40, 40, 40, 45 offshore guys getting paid $4 an hour <laughs> to, do, to do tech support. Um, but you couldn't stare a big retailer in the face and tell them that you'd done this with five engineers because they just wouldn't take you seriously. They're like, really? You're like, uh, how are you going to support our infrastructure? It's like, well, believe it or not, you don't need 10,000 engineers to build a good product. Yeah. Um, huh. So we, we literally got to market in eight months, which is record speed. And then we, we, you know, we launched with a few, well, we did a soft launch with you. Yeah. Um, you know, got the ads going and got the system going and got a few guys in the US going, smaller clients, and then we got Dan Murphy's here going. You yeah. know, and that's, that's a big contract. That was the big one, right? Because yeah. it was the it was the first real client that had good volume. Yeah. And at the time, like they were all guns blazing too. They're like, we want to go hard, we want to go fast, and we were just like we were thinking every client was gonna be like this. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, you'd snag. <coughs> yeah, keep going. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, yeah. some fucking big clients. We did, yeah, yeah. But mm -hmm. like, but Dan's was definitely the start of the bigger clients, um, and they wanted to launch on December one, which is their busiest day of the year. Wow! So our guys had gone from maybe doing a few hundred ad requests a day to five million ad requests a day in the first day. Wow. And so we're thinking, oh man, like I really hope the system doesn't shit itself. <laughs> Because our reputation <coughs> and our entire business will go in the toilet with it. Like, because if if that had failed that first time, big companies don't give you a second chance. Yeah. Like, we would have been turned off. We were turned off after an hour because our system wasn't something wrong with the technical thing. We managed to fix straight away. But if we'd have gone down again, 
we'd have been finished. Yeah. Um, but we weren't, and we, you know, the testament to my team, they built a fantastic product and it worked out of the box and coped with the load. You know, we were returning ads and we served 1.4 million ads in our first day. Wow. So, so, you know, and that was a, we all remember that moment. All the things we did after that, you know, we signed massive clients and we expanded overseas and we made a lot more money off a lot of different companies, but we all remember that midnight before of just thinking, when this ticks over to 12.01, they're gonna put it into production and it's gonna start. And you, you wouldn't be, you'd be surprised how many people buy alcohol at midnight. No. Uh, <laughs> at 1 a.m. in the morning. Really? Oh yeah. Uh, and so, and then it started at like nine o'clock in the morning, it started to really peak and then, and then we just, we got through the day and we had a beer and we're just like, how good's that? Like, that's what you do it for. And then all fucking downhill from there. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it was, um, but that was the start of the uh, the credibility, right? So you know, you build a product, you it works, it worked kind of exactly how we wanted it to work, um, and then we we you know the big guys like Coles and Woolies, you know, they were they were they were much harder, you know, procurement teams, longer contracts, you know, probably took another couple of years really to get those big guys going, but we we'd set off. We from immediately from day one we had teams in the US and the UK. Yeah. Because we knew Australia only really had like three or four big fish that were worth getting. And then overseas we basically not that there were our insurance policies, but we knew if we if we didn't get the Australian market, could, which was still a flip of a coin. Yeah. Like there, there was no way, even with the best product, that we would ever get those big guys to work yeah. with us. Just for no other reason than it could have been the wrong price, could have been political, we were a startup, we were dealing with a lot of data, you know, they, there's so many reasons why you'd say no to us. Um, and then we started to sign some guys in the UK and the US and then and then Citrus, you know, everyone kind of thinks, oh, you know, it was an overnight success and it was kind of like like a rocket ship, you know, from A to Z and, you know, you just knocked it out of the park straight away. And But it wasn't like that, you know. We, we, we were in dire straits again in February 2020. This is before COVID yeah, hit. Yeah, just before COVID. So, so this is before COVID hit. So we were out of cash. Just. Yep, just before COVID, out of cash, um, off the back of a seven-month capital raise that we didn't complete. So you went for another raise then, which I recall. Yep, we went for an institutional raise. That's right. In so the what's US. an institutional Well, raise? it's someone who's more strategic. Okay. So someone yep. that's so going to not only give you money but access to clientele or yep. access to their distribution network, access to a sales team. So who did you find in that period? Uh, we went to everyone who was sort of in our space. Yeah. Not direct competitors, but like adjacent companies that were kind of similar to what we did, had the similar clientele to what we had, but they they weren't directly competing. Like we would be complementary product to them. Yeah. And you know, we went to we went to try and get acquired as well. Like part of it was that we were pretty burnt out. We were we were ready. We were done then, man. Like we we were really done. So and that's after what three years? Yeah, yeah just about. Yeah. Three so you're years. starting to feel like fuck. Here we go again. Yeah, it's it's. Well, truth be told, after three months, I was feeling like that. <laughs> so three months in, I was looking for a new CEO. <laughs> Just to give you an idea <laughs> which of which, evidently, uh, was you the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, I kept. Come on, up. Nick. What the fuck were you doing, yeah, mate? You know, he, he, mate? He was my lifeline, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but un- unfortunately, you know, as a as founders and as as a founder. You know, I, I always make the reference of the Lord of the Rings. You know, if you ever watched it, you'd know that Frodo is the only one that can carry the ring to Mordor. 
you know, and every every step along the way, he just wants someone just to carry it for a bit. You know, you carry it. But the problem with the ring is that it corrupts people and only he could have the strength to, not only the mental strength, but he knew that he was the one with the purpose to hold it, right? And so startup founders are no different. You know, there's nothing more you want to do than give off the ring to, you know, someone else who's bigger and stronger than you are or just just, just to lend it, you know. It's just, Sam, just take it just for now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Gorm's behind me. He's trying to kill me the whole time. He's give us a shepherd for a bit, you know, put on a put on a block. Uh, but as founders, you, you only you can carry it. And... Um, is a is a good analogy and it's something that I think if you ever want a visual representation of what a founder journey looks like, it's like Lord of the Rings. Because what you do is you end up going, okay, it's ultimately only one or two people that can carry it, right? Yeah. yeah. And without Nick, I'd never have made it. Yeah. Like, And there's a reason I say co-founders have a 30% more chance of making it than single founders statistically because you need that support. You're both doing as much as each other yeah. in different ways. Um, and... You know, you, it reminds you that along the way you need, you know, Gandalf the Grey, you need like other characters in your life that are going to provide you with the support, but they support you. They're not going to go, here, Brad, let me take it off you. Let me run with it for a while. And so the minute that you come to terms with the fact that you're never, ever, ever going to be able to give up that ring, you're better off, right? And at that point when I was looking for a CEO, I interviewed a few people and I was like, you know what? I reminded myself of that concept and said, only you can do this, unfortunately. Whether you like it or not, you're in it now. Yeah, You're going to do it. You just got to get good people around you. And um, and so, yeah, so we, 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 like I can talk about the business growth if you want, but it, it's um, like one of the hurdles, well, to talk about the hurdle, like one of the big hurdles that we hit was, um. Yep. So can you tell us the growth, uh, the revenue? Uh, are you allowed to say the revenue for one, two, three years and how that projection yeah, was set? Yeah, I can set? give you a rough estimate. Yeah, like, or just like, give us a... So like, you, the thing that I think a lot of... Uh, uh, coming from bricks and mortar and not tech, um, you know, you're used to things that make money, um, albeit a little bit, and that's probably why you watch it so much. So to, to see businesses that don't make money and get sold for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, it's quite hard for old. I reckon it's what's definitely, I speak to my old man about it. He, he fucking can't believe that that's how it works. But it appears that that's pretty normal for tech. The tech business shows lots of growth and maybe not so much profit, but that seems to be the key performance and go, oh, okay, well, that's working. Someone who buys that sees the trajectory and they want that. Yeah. Is that yeah, well, so, one of the aims I wanted, to, like with Citrus, I really wanted to, a lot of guys measure their success of a startup on how much money they raise, right? Yeah. And then, and then a little bit about like, okay, how much money are we making, like gross? But one of the things I really wanted to build was a company that actually made profit. Yeah. <laughs> As a startup, startups don't. You yeah. know, even, even big listed startups that are worth billions still don't make any profit. And... And that's kind of a trap that founders fall into is they believe that I'll just keep building and building and building and eventually someone will buy me and they'll work out how to make profit off it. But we were we we went from doing like nothing in revenue to like 2018, we did a mill. 2019, we did five. And in 2020, we did 40. Yeah. And then 21, what, you know, I talk about 21 because we're owned company now but they're kind of the rough ballpark but it's right? a lot so, more than 40 correct yeah <laughs> it, 
In fact, I think we did 50 in 20, yeah, 50 in 2020. No, that's kind of not public, but you know, a lot of people kind of um, know, know that number. Um, so, you know, you get kind of five times growth in your second year and 10 times growth in your third year. But the, the pleasing thing about the third year is we actually made a profit yeah. um, as a tech company. So, and we were going pretty hard on expenditure. Um, but that year was not all rosy. Like that year was a tale of, of two stories. February, we were broke. We were out of cash. We were going back to the shareholders and they were basically fatigued. Again, they were fatigued. They put in cash a few times. You know, I'd call you up every now and then and go, mate, put your hand in your pocket. And you, uh, as you fucking did, and I wish I fucking did. Uh, no, I look at it now and think, Jesus, I'm going to have to get a loan off Brad soon. Yeah, that's but, right. <laughs> you did all right, mate. You did all right. <laughs> But you know they they you could see what was going on and it looked good like from a, as an investor point of view, you could see you're picking up clients, picking mm. up traction, and you know I think as an investor I, I I what I could see from the outside looked good and I think I knew more because I, I spoke to you personally. I, mm. I was my questions to you and you probably. I don't know if you pick up on it, but it was more how are you, Brad? Like, yeah, yeah, I was, no, no, you were always asking how I was, not so much the business. Yeah, but. because to me, you know, I was backing the 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 horse and the jockey. Yeah, I was backing the jockey. Well, the, you know, yeah, that's fair enough. I was backing the jockey, and I I could I could sense that it was tough yeah. as and you know it sort of makes you think, fuck, it's brutal being the founder of. Oh, it a isn't, startup. and often like it was your phone calls that would not pissing in your pocket, but it was often phone calls from guys like you that would keep me energized like yeah. keep going right because I'm it, the optimist well, I, I am you are you are <laughs> but you're also you don't ring up and go well how much money did you make last month yeah you know, and are we sticking to projections yeah. are we on the right track here yeah. forecast like, as, a, as a founder are those sort of questions you know are they needed uh, do they need to, be need to you know how do you because that must happen a hell of a lot to majority yeah. of people that have set up a startup how how can as an investor from an investor's point of view what's the best way to be able to handle the situation that you're in like you know are those calls warranted you know do you think it's fair that they can ask that or is there a time and a place like your monthly report hey guys read it that's how we're going you know, is there yeah, is some good yeah. advice for yeah. people that are investing that, you know, the ones breaking the balls of the, the founders? Is, would you say Most that's of my a, investors are pretty passive. Yeah. Um, you did that on purpose though. Yeah, but they, they, they nominated a director to kind of look after him. Yeah. Um, but he was very fair and yeah, he would uh, – and I would, I'd write a monthly report you know, as I promised I would. It was in my contract, you know, um, and the other thing that was in my contract is if I ever left the business, all my shares were dissolved to nothing. So, you know, I had a vested reason to stick around. <laughs> I didn't have a choice. <laughs> so Nick and oh, I basically damn. chained ourselves to life in that business. Um, but, yeah, like the phone calls, they definitely help and they're few and far between. But, no, look, in terms of advice to investors, I guess you've got lots of different types of personas that people want to invest, right? People want to invest because they want to be involved or they want to be around a tech startup or they think it's cool to be around a tech startup. Yeah. but. As an investor, you've got to be careful, I think, because ultimately as a founder, you, you, you are accountable to their money, right? You, are, you should be held accountable. Um, but to ask, um, like to say un, not like unconstructive things is yeah. probably not useful. Like, you know, oh, you better make more money next month yeah, or you yeah. better do – it's like yeah. no shit, shit, no, like, shit. Right? Like, yeah. you, know, you don't have to tell someone like me <laughs> who's the perfectionist with an insecurity complex. <laughs> 
driven to be successful <coughs> with a failed startup behind me. But then next month needs to be better. All right. All right. <laughs> I fucking know it oh, needs to be better shit. and I'm going to do everything in my power to make it better. So I think it's more just about understanding who your founder is. Just yeah. like understanding who your football players are, right? It's very similar. So most founders are get up and go kind of guys yeah, and, and they're driven. And so you probably don't, don't need to crack the drive whip over them, which is often where a lot of investors go. It's more around, well, what can we do to help you? Like yeah. how, how can we... What resources do you need, or or are you thinking about this business in a in the right way, or have you thought about it in this way? So, most investors will always be passive, um, and in that case, if you're a passive investor and you don't know the company that well and you can't add value, it's probably better off to stay in the background. Yeah, just shut up. Yeah, you don't have to be. You know? I mean, yeah. It's fine. Like I don't look at my investors and go, "Oh, none of you helped me along the way." You did. You all helped me. You put in all the money that got us to where we got to. Yeah. Um, very rarely you get you know, ones that are active, but, you know, we developed a friendship over that period of time between companies. And so you could call me and ask me all those hard questions if you wanted to, or you'd ask me how I was going and that sort of stuff. So um, I think for investors, yeah, it's it's an interesting one for – for mentors, though, I think you know, I was on a podcast yesterday with with a with a startup group, and I said like the the number one thing that founders need is a mentor uh, or a couple, yeah, because it's a really really lonely road, and more often than not, your customers, your staff, uh, your investors, they need you to be the strong one, you know, they need you to protect them, and when you're protecting them and the big bad world, it's not looking so good. You know, you're always having to put on the brave face and you can't really turn around to staff and go, you know what, actually, it's not really going that well and oh, I don't know if we're going to pay payroll next <laughs> week <coughs> and you're going to be out of a job and your two kids aren't going to be able to go to private school next week and stuff. So you, got to, you can't have those conversations, yeah. right? So, yeah. But in startups, they happen time and time again and um, you know, if everyone knew, particularly with my first startup, if everyone knew how close we were to the edge of the cliff you know they'd, they'd run a mile mm. so i think you've got to be you've got to be super diligent on being st- like steely in in and having a good poker face and pretending like everything's really okay when it's not um i think that's the same for <clears throat> any yeah. any business art, and Correct. that's true leaders lead from the front yep and you know it may be tough but i know in your mind you're thinking oh this isn't going to go to shit um, it might not be best right now. Mm. So I think that's quite quite normal. Yeah, no, it is <clears> definitely. <throat> I think as a, fa- as a founder though, what you definitely need, it's not just even as a founder, it's any 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 executive, right? Anyone that works towards the top of the, the pyramid of the food chain, right? It, it, you very rarely get people that give you a pat on the back. It's like it's either you did what you said you were going to do. Yep, tick. Tick or you didn't slap so yeah, it's, it, there isn't really a well done kind of thing or how you go on type of thing. And, and, and you don't get that from investors or, or board members because they have liability attached to your business. So they, and they, so they can't separate the two. So I know you did fairly well, but, a lot, uh, but again, you know, I think you backed the jockey, not the horse. So if, if it had all gone tits up, I don't know. I'm speaking for you here, but yeah, I reckon I, you still I, might have called me at the end of it and gone, you know what? You lost my money, but I still might talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what are you working on next, Brad? <laughs> I'm working with Drake's for the next five years to repay my debt. Uh, I, I mean, and that, uh, 
Yeah, I, I guess. But that seriously guess crossed so. my mind too. So, uh, you know, I thought about if I lost JP's money, I'd probably want to pay him back. So I'm probably moving back to Adelaide. I'm probably going to run his digital department for a while and then, you know, pay him back. Fuck, I'd deal. have no people. It would, it, yeah, it's okay. It's no, all right. No, 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 no. You're, you're so, anyway. uh, it's uh, no, but you do need mentors, right? And yeah, I, I've, I've been asked to mentor some people that I, it, when I've looked at what they're doing, I don't think I have can add some value. Um, and even joining boards, I, I said, I actually said 2021, I'm not going to do any boards that I don't think I can provide some good solid input. Yep. And, and that's been, that decision for me has been the best thing that I've done in my mind because. Uh, it's no point me being on a board where I feel I'm, my con- contribution's going nowhere or I'm just there because, oh, you just can represent Drake's in retail. Like if if I'm in there and what I'm saying is not getting heard, not for me. Mm. And I, I think it should be that mentoring is you need to be very – you have to pick the right mentor, huh? Definitely. you got to – I mean, ideally you pick someone who's been there and done it before, but that's, that is hard to find in Australia in the same kind of suburb as you, right? Yeah. But – but the Zoom allows you to speak to lots of different people. Yeah. And I've put my yeah. hand up and said, I'm happy to mentor anybody that wants to listen to me. But oh, the thing, here we go. Yeah, well, the thing I found most valuable and, the, um, and I'll give you an example of how things change is when like people that give you consultative advice when it's independent, so it's not bound to the company in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, totally independent. Very rare too, by the way. Someone's always got an angle. Correct. So when it's independent, they all they care about you, right? So they, they, they and for most of the time, it's just get out of your own head. Stop overthinking it. Like yeah. you just overthink. Stop thinking, do. Stop thinking, just do it. Yeah. Right. Quoting Nike now, but major sponsor. Um, they were once upon a time. <laughs> Uh, I used to get five dollars a week. <laughs> Me and Ronaldo, <laughs> similar packets. So 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 similar. I know, I know. I know. <clears throat> oh, anyway, I'm a foot taller, so um, <laughs> he's got more McLarens than me, though. Oh, I bet you yes. he has. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, okay, we got lost there. Where were we oh, going? Just with start that? thinking about cars. Or I know. Cool. I'm just thinking about orange McLaren, yeah. <laughs> Citrus, number plate. Oh. I can't even remember what we're talking about. I saw Cortisone's format. <laughs> Cortisol, I should say. Um, so. Mentors. So we were talking yeah, about so mentors. independent mentors, right? Yeah. So you've got to have an independent mentor because the minute that they have a vested interest in, their, in your business, they then start to think about the money they've got. And then it's just human nature to go, my advice now goes from being completely independent of thinking about you to I kind of want to protect that asset that I've got now. And if you're not quite up to scratch, then I'm going to get a bit worried. So so it does blur the lines. Yeah. You know, so if you're going to have mentors, do not at any circumstance make them investors. Yeah. Oh, and I can see, I, I can actually see that. I know it's a blanket rule on some people are like, oh, it's bullshit, you know, but there's always edge cases, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they're rich enough to blow all their money on you, cool, then that's fine. But if they can separate their money from their help, great. But not many people can. Yeah, because they're always concerned about Correct. what's going on with their dollar. You know, yeah. they've got a couple hundred grand and you- That's good advice. Generally speaking, they're not going to give you what you need. They're going to give you their slant. Yeah. And, and and they should because they're protecting their assets. So the good advice would be 
get some mentors early um, to help you prepare for what's going to come. So, you know, I'm writing a book not because I want to sell a book. I'm writing it because I was told by a therapist to write one because it's about self-therapy and trying to kind of unpack everything that's gone on over the past 20 years. And there's nothing else to a memoir to my kids, right? But the way I was going to structure it was kind of writing down the emotional side but also the – like all the constructive things that I would have done differently or all the things that I did well that other founders could really learn from. Yeah. And go, well, if it was to write a book, if it was for me, I'd be like, well, I hate, there's no way I'm going to read 300 pages because I was get bored in the first five seconds. Like, yeah, like I, long emails. Like, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go, okay, well, let's say there's 10 major components, capital raising, growing, yeah. recruiting, yeah. even selling a business is, has an art form to it. And then within those are like 10 subsections, right? So then as, as a founder, you can go, well, I'm in capital raising and I want to learn about, okay, how much money to raise. And the way I'd structure it is, okay, you need to raise between two and two and a half million based on these assumptions and like write five bullet points. Okay, if, if that's enough for some people, which for me it would be, yeah. they go, okay, I'm done. That's justification enough. And then I'd write a bit that's like, okay, here's the narrative. Here's the five boring pages. Yeah. Yeah, about why at one point yeah, yeah. So, so then you end up with a 300 page book that's <laughs> effectively just 100 micro tiny little snippets um but this would be one of those right so the mentoring side is definitely a, a huge component and, and i wish if i had my time again i was lucky to have nick so nick is my co-founder and mentor and the reason why co-founder is so important is because they know all of the deep dark secrets they know the struggles they know the pain they know the problems you're in they're there to fight them with you they've got as much on the line with you not against you and so that's why co-founders work well yeah but again got to pick the right co-founder it's got to be equal yeah you know it's it's there's a lot of things that can go wrong um but yeah that that was that was a big point for me so if you could look at look at what you know you've given lots of uh, nuggets of what's worked for you did, did you look to, you know, you're talking about mentors. Did you look to any other big business or, you know, did you look at stuff that Apple did or Steve Jobs or did you look at any other business and, and how you per, were perceived, how they, you know, they handled business and go, yeah, that's a good trait um, or that's actually I can see how that can work for me? Yeah, look, I think a couple of things there. So I've met people along the way that, you know, um, firstly, I want to say like, all intensive purposes, we executed well, but I was extremely lucky. Like luck is what got Citrus to where it is. Yeah. Nothing else. Fucking luck. Yeah. Because I could have been born into a different family. I could have been born with a different skill set. We could have been. We could have started Citrus at a different time. Like no, you would never have worked. We got so lucky with the people that we hired, with the people that backed us. I mean, COVID. no one should have backed us, right? And yeah, COVID definitely nearly crippled us for six months, but then it, we came out the other end looking pretty rosy. The COVID definitely helped the acquisition. It didn't help the business. Yeah. I won't dig into that too much. It's boring. Yeah. But um, when you're selling B2B, like you're, when you're selling yeah. to someone like Woolies during COVID, yeah. they got no time to think about new yeah. product, right? Correct, okay. But every yeah, one of their enough. staff members yeah. is in the warehouse. Like Willie's ex, the whole team were picking orders because yeah. they had supply chain <laughs> issues. Anyway, um, I forget where we're going with that. Uh, um, and you forgot too. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I, was, I was more like, you know, were there other businesses or oh, yeah, other right. people yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You, you came in for some reason and, said, and literally, you know, like um, 
um, what's his face on on the social network? He said, oh, don't call it the Facebook. Just yeah, 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 yeah. Facebook. Like, it, it, did I, anyone did, did drop the, the episode, Yeah, did you have a Napster? Or did you have something that someone said, something <laughs> he went, fuck, bang on, and for no particular reason because – yeah, I'm one of these. I, everything happens for a reason. That's what I think. And yeah, yeah, for sure. You're building something, creating something that yep. you were hoping was going to be a unicorn, yep. like every single person that starts a high tech. Uh, was there something that just flew in from a, a mentor from another business that you saw and that 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 gelled with you? And why did it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I think, like the book side, <laughs> no, like I, I, I've never read a book in my life. Yeah, if that was a lie, I've read one. Eminem's autobiography. That's crap. Yeah, because uh, he didn't get real and talk about anything legitimate. Which is unusual for him. To, like, well, he's been like, soft. I don't know why, but uh, anyway. So, so people don't need to read a thousand books on startups. I didn't subscribe to any startup blogs. Didn't know. I didn't involve myself in the startup community at all. Yeah. Because what I found was largely bunch of founders that wanted to go around these events with their t-shirts on and sticking their chests out sort of pretending like everything was rosy and everything with was amazing right on. it like no one really wanted to talk about the hard stuff about actually this is really hard and yeah. i'm struggling and you i know you are too but you just won't tell me you are so anyway so we never really got involved in in that that area there are a couple of companies that really helped me along the way um nothing really that sort of that helps us individually yeah. but like I, I was always fascinated with apple and their packaging uh, of all things, yeah, and and Louis Vuitton to a to a to a lesser degree, but Apple I knew because they were a tech company. They had an entire packaging division of like three thousand people. Wow, that would fo- they, focus solely on packaging on how it comes because it it definitely comes very feels like Christmas very, when you open it. Ah, right? oh, very cute. So Jobs wasn't stupid. Like yeah. he knew that the first experience you have for the brand is the packaging. Yeah, same as Louis Vuitton, right? So you, everyone keeps their Louis Vuitton boxes. Because they're so nice. Yeah, it's a little bit extra money to spend, but when you were talking premium about premium product, product yeah, hundred percent. And even back in the Nokia days, we got Marcelina to change their pizza boxes to these bright Ferrari red with the Marcelina. We redesigned their logo because we said, look, people consume the pizza, and then that pizza box sits on their or in their fridge, in the fridge, or yeah. it sits somewhere for like the next twenty four hours. So yeah. that is your first point of marketing. So make it make it amazing. Make it when they get it, they feel like they're getting the most premium thing in the world, and, and it is premium pizza. But you know, when you open it, whatever, like the first experience is, is the packaging. So when you're selling software, it's hard to sell packaging. <laughs> a little, a little bit difficult because mate, you're selling like vaporware at best, um, <laughs> or, or things that things that people can't touch. You know, they, they they can't like pick up a cup and go, oh yeah, this is a pretty decent product. You yeah. know. Um, so we we built our product decks out really well. We always had them printed, and we would bind them as if they were like the most luxurious book in the world. Yeah. So and, and that that went down really really well. Um, it was the attention to detail that yeah. I really enjoyed. And then Stripe.com, we modelled our entire business model off theirs being just an API that people would connect to. Yeah. Because we knew from our experience with NoQ that it's very hands on. You had to be inside the supermarkets helping them launch and. Therefore, you needed a massive team everywhere. You want to go to the US, you got to have 50 people over there. Yep. Citrus, we had like 25 global clients from all around the world without leaving Australia because they would just look at our documentation and then integrate themselves and we wouldn't need to do anything. So we built it in a very, in a, in a, in a scalable way. Um, so they're probably the two major things. But honestly, the, the, um, one of them, we, we went through a, I mean, that point just there, you had a global business from 
Australia. Yep. Without travelling across the world. And then we grew our headcount from 30 to 150 during COVID without leaving home. Uh, it's incredible. So um, luckily we put in some hard yards early, which had helped that, but yep. it can be done right, with the right resourcing. Um, and then the, then the third and probably most critical one was how we built Citrus. So, you know, kudos to the My Food Link guys. Bit of a shout out to Julian on it here. <laughs> um, so we had this big argument internally about how the system should be built. You know, do we go, I don't know, we're going to get technical now, but like, do we go like, like front end yep. talking to the, web, to the back end or do, or do we go server to server? And I was always about speed. I was like, no, this thing's got to be fast. And it wasn't until Julian put his foot down with our team and said, no, nah, unless it's 50 milliseconds or less, we're not going to use your product. Yeah, because that's that, what they actually wanted for MFL. Yeah, because they, yeah. they, they, they were concerned about the user experience of their customers. And so, so was I, but it, it took for someone like him to tell the team that it needed to be server-side and then, and then, we, then we ended up going down that route. And that was our point of difference for like the first two years against Critio because Critio would put a piece of JavaScript on the front, on the yeah. website, website would call a backend system, then call another one. And it was like a- And then it, it was like a two, halfway through It was the, a two second round trip, yeah, right? Okay. So the page loads and then one, two, then the ads load. Yeah. It's a bad experience. And that's why they often sat at the bottom of the page until they kind of reinvented the whole system. And so, yeah, so we, we were like, you know what, we're gonna be back-end to back-end, server to server, and instantly we just, bang, resonated with clients. Like, you're not going to even notice. That, that's the key. All. It was. And so, you know, when you think about people that made a difference along the way, external people anyway, there's lots of people internally that always yeah. make a difference. But, yeah, my food link made a massive difference. Yeah. If we hadn't have done that, we even wow. look back now and joke and go, oh, you know, uh, they were more valuable than we let them, <laughs> let, let them know about. <laughs> I don't know if they listen to this. Well, that's, they, yeah, they'll be, nah, they, they won't be nah. listening. Well, maybe Nathan, Julian, if you're listening. Well, just hurry up and get it working on Drake's. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Again. let's, let's uh, I've got some questions that we've had people send in. Yeah, yeah. I've got some real hard-hitting wrap-up questions. Yeah, yeah. But just for an entrepreneur mm. that all those guys and girls out there starting, do you want to, what did it feel like? You, you'd done the deal, so for Citrus, and... I know you 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 um, mentioned to me. I look got something due diligence six weeks. All this you're using other terminology that you, it probably means something. You didn't know the deal was done until the money even. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I, it was done six months before uh, that. Uh, and I kept on saying like it is for real. Like you know, come. I you know for me it wasn't actually about the it, was, it wasn't about the money. And and I know I can say that now, but it actually wasn't. I kept on saying to you like. You know, but is it, what do they do at the end of that period? They just walk away and you're basically saying, unless they find something really fucking bad, which wasn't what we told them that, you know, what what did it actually feel like going through that process? But I want you to end with what it felt like. What was the defining moment? Like when you saw your bank account, what, what actually, how did that actually play out? Because that, if someone's growing a business, wants to sell a business, that's a you know, that, that's a, an amazing feeling that you can turn around and people look at go, oh, it's four years of work, fucking lucky, blah, blah, blah. But it's really 12 years of work. Mm. Uh, what did it feel like for you and what was like the, the main part? Like when, when it was actually in the account, is that when it was like, oh, okay, this is real, I guess. Like, because I, I know mm. that you sent me a screenshot 
of what it was and you had like $4,000 left in your account. And and I remember where I was. I, I'd had a meeting um, with Bridgestone because we we're talking about franchising. And if anyone's listening about that, yeah, take that to whatever you want. So we went to Bridgestone and I remember I got that call and, and I, I was in the car park and you sent me, you, you go, oh, the, it, it's dropped. And, and like, I was like, oh, I was, I was fucking elated for, for you. And instantly I went to my phone. I had fucking nothing in there. And, 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 and second tier bank. Yeah, right? second tier bank. Keep fucking drumming it in. And, and like, for me to hear how you were and to the feel that what was going through the emotions to me was absolutely, it, it was amazing. And I was mm. so lucky to be on the other mm. end of that. Yeah. How was it for you? Like when, when did you, it, when was it, you'll use the word surreal, but when, when was when was it that uh, it hit home? And, you know, I guess everyone strives for that feeling. Can yeah. you give us a bit of an insight of what yeah, it felt definitely. for you? Um, <coughs> so I'll start with, I got asked this question at the 1013 runway end of year thing last year with Steve Baxter and his crew. And I was up on stage and we're talking about exits. So we were the exit panel, there was a startup panel, there was a grow up panel, whatever. And, you know, the guy next to me was talking about, you know, how great it was that they'd got acquired and he was on cloud nine and all that sort of stuff. And I just sort of, I was like, look, when the money drops, you know, you were on the phone. Like I shed a tear. Like it was very emotional. Yeah, I was full on, man. I think I was crying because you were crying. Cause it was. It wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for you guys doing it and you get a lot of, sh- a lot of, you know, you and you and Nick, your co-founder, mm. plus your whole team. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. And I, I kept on fucking refreshing my page and nothing was coming through. And I'm like, oh, is it real still, Brad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, bank with NAB, mate. Comes to Australia. I'll plug. Keep uh, going. Yeah, so look, that – because even though the deal was done well before then and due diligence was finished, which is, you know, what you are talking about, um, we knew it happened, but until – it's not even again. It's not even about the money, but I guess the money dropping was kind of like, okay, it's done. Like nothing can stop it now. It's all kind of done, and nothing could have stopped it anyway. But a very surreal moment that it was more about, like, there weren't tears of joy. It was it, it was relief. Yeah. Like for me, it was like twelve years of shit. You know, all of a sudden became worth it. Mm. You know, it was like uh, all the demons that I tried to bury, you know, in the last sort of coming off a failure, big failure, and then like people still quite not believing in citrus. And then it was a, it was, it was just a moment of a very, a very brief moment because I'll talk about like the days after. But it was a very brief moment of, all right, demons are buried now. I did what I said I was going to do, and I'm not what people thought I was, which is a failure. So that was immediately kind of the, the, and we went out and like me and my wife had, I think I had half a glass of champagne because I'd like already had as much anxiety and emotion. I didn't need anything else. It tipped me over the edge. I think I had about 16 coffees that day. So I was like, I better keep it low key. I think I spoiled myself with some chicken nuggets on the way home. Um, but it was- uh, Macca's or KFC? Yeah, or Macca's. Yeah. Right? Um, so look, it was that one moment on the phone was probably the most animated I ever got. But then, you know, I talked about this on a panel and I said on- uh, You know what? I filmed it. Did you? Yeah, you did yeah. too. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, unfortunately, 
a lot of founders probably don't want to hear this, but um, it doesn't, the balloon doesn't burst. Yeah. Like, you know, the stress, the anxiety, the insecurities, the like constant questioning yourself, am I good enough? Like, am I a failure? Am I a success? And I'm seven months on now after the acquisition. Yeah. And, and you've got another couple of years or you're uh, oh, I'm st- I'll keep going forever. Like, yeah. There's no set time limit. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I didn't feel any sense of relief after it. Like I, I, I knew objectively that I ticked a box and I, and I knew I'd done a good job and I knew that it was a good deal for everyone involved. And we could have done many other deals at the time and we were yeah. looking at many other suitors, but I chose publicists because they were the best company, best people yeah. to work with and work for. And I thought, well, if I'm going to forge another 10 years of my career with these people, these are the guys I want yeah. to do it with. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is a, it's a big testament to them, but it's also, you know, a testament to sort of our characteristics as a founding group to turn down bigger offers maybe to, to work with guys that are, we believed were just better people. Yeah. And, um, but I remember speaking at this event and, and like Steve Baxter and everyone else in, in the room kind of just like went, because uh, like, I said, if you think that selling your business for a couple of hundred million bucks is going to solve your problems, yeah. you're badly mistaken. Yeah. Because it ain't going to solve shit. Like you're going to wake up the next morning feeling the same you did the day before. You know, if you've worked that hard for it and you're anything like me, which most founders are, you know, I said, it's not going to, it's not, it's not going to make you any happier, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and, and I could say that because be, it, it had been about three months, three and a half months since we'd made the acquisition, since the, since the sale, yeah. but since the money had dropped. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Steve is quickly trying to like wind me up because like, he runs a fund, right? So he wants to make it look fucking <laughs> this rosy. This is good, guys. You want this? This is good. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're it's, it's all happy. it's all like roses at the end, right? You know, the unicorn. You go swimming with the unicorns or flying with the unicorns Fly, at the end, mate. And uh, and it's just not like that. It, it's it's I can't describe it, but it, it it's um yeah. And a lot of the founders came up to me at the end of the at the end of the sermon and the oh, sermon fucking church service, but. They came up to me at the end of the of the gig and they said, you know what, thanks for being honest. And it's so refreshing to hear someone that's actually honest about how it actually feels. Yeah. And I said, and it's a it's a it's a really hard gig to get to that point and to get acquired, because lots of people that grow startups start startups and kind of leave midway through or hand it over their reins and let someone else kind of But being acquired is a whole different beast altogether. Something yeah. I'd never been through before. Yeah. Um and people were asking about how the acquisition went and, you know, the guy next to me was kind of like, you know, we're, it was just, you know, kind of step A, step B, step C, you know, we got a broker in, they did this and, they, and it all got done. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> dog, you for real? Like, <laughs> that's not how it happened. Like, it, you got to hustle, man. Like, you, you know, this is a deal, this is a negotiating contract. This is a de- You're selling your business. And so, like, of course, I always keep the ethical line when it comes to what I want and what is best for everybody. But it's still negotiating at the end of the day. And yeah. so you're negotiating with five, six parties. You're calling lots of different people. You're negotiating with lower level execs, M&A guys. And it is like house of cuts type shit. Like it is cutthroat. And if you blink or you slip any second, they'll sniff it out and they'll hunt you down or they'll, you know, basically. And you've got to be in a position to walk away. Yeah. 
And if you're never in a position to walk away, you're very vulnerable, you know. So even if you're not, even if you are on your knees and you're crippled or you don't want to do it and you want to sell the business and you want to flog it, you've got to pretend like you're not, yeah. you know. And so like we could have kept going. Like yeah. did I want to go for another five years? No. But what gives me the confidence to say I could have kept going was I, I wanted to throw in the towel five years ago and, and I'm still here. Yeah. So my, my, track, my track record would say that I could probably go another year or two. Yeah. But – and it could have been maybe maybe it could be more money in that period of time. It could have, um, but I saw COVID coming, and, I, and what I saw was a great deal for everyone involved in my shareholders. And what I saw in the future was a massive amount of uncertainty. Yeah. And the last thing that I wanted to do was to piss it all up the wall to try and go double or nothing. Yeah. Because COVID, like whilst we rode the, the coattails of COVID for a while. We're going to hit supply chain issues this year. Yeah. And what happens when there's no product on the shelf? Yeah. No one buys ads to sell those products. Yeah. And so we could have been in a world of pain. <clears throat> and and I, and, I, and I kind of calculated the risk versus reward, as I always do. And I thought, you know what? This is a, this is a good deal. This is the good time. Um, but we were on a great growth trajectory. Yeah. But you know what? Great. All, all the best to publicists who, who now reap that benefit. And, and I'm so happy for that. And I'm so yeah. happy for them. But... Coming back to the founder story, you know, around how it felt, it felt great for like an hour. Yeah. But you've always got to come back to the why. Why did you start this business in the first place? And by selling it for a chunk of change, did that, did that give you what you wanted? Yeah. Is money your God? Because if it is, you'll burn out very, very quickly. Yeah. Because money's pass. never – because you can't see it. Yeah. Everyone thinks unicorns. They think billions of dollars – but when you look at your PL every month and it's like, oh, we did like 50 grand in revenue or we did 100 grand in revenue, you can't quite see that unicorn, right? It's yeah. very, very far into the distance. It's magical. It is. Well, most unicorns are 12 to 15 years old. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and, and another stat for you, which a lot of people don't realize, is that the average unicorn raises 100 million in, in equity before it gets to its unicorn valuation. So, so we that's raised, giving up from that. that. That's giving a fair bit up from from the founders. Yeah, it also shows you're going to you're raising a lot, you know, a lot of cash to get there, and that's that's valuation, not necessarily companies that have sold for a billion. Because there's still, I believe, there's so many companies out there that are on paper valued at billions of dollars that will end up being valued for not nothing, but cents, cents in the dollar. You yeah, know, because it's just paper money. So there you go. Um, yep. So grow your business, sell it for. A, for a, a fair bit of change and um, and still be exactly how you were. And that's only Brad. I mean, luckily for Brad, I have bought some toys which Brad can enjoy. And I'm, I'm fucking, glad you are. I'm so excited about that because Brad's got buyer's block, which um, I definitely didn't. So no, you spent your money, I think, before it even landed. <laughs> so, but there's nothing better, there's nothing more rewarding than as a founder that built value for shareholders to see someone like you go out buy a McLaren bright orange with a number of plates citrus on it and just be super excited like that probably gave me more enjoyment than the actual money hit my bank account <laughs> well I'm glad it did because uh, there's uh, I'm sure there's plenty more ahead for you Brad we, I've got some questions from people on Instagram and Facebook yeah, go for it. Uh, we've answered quite a lot of them but yeah, yeah. Um, um, Henry 
Davis. Uh, how do you feel about the incredibly high taxes imposed on pretty much everything you or your business does? So, you, such a loaded question. Your business wasn't set up in the Cayman Islands or you know something clever like that. It was not. Yes. Um, um, so you're paying your full amount of tax to the Australian government. We are. It's a double-edged sword, right? No, nobody wants to pay tax. Um, in my tax bill, like CGT is still pretty decent. You get your 50% off. So at the end of the day, my accountant once told me, if you're trying to make money from saving tax, you're focusing in the wrong areas. Like go build a business, like 74 cents on the dollar is not too bad, to be honest. 76 cents on the dollar is not too bad, to be honest. You can put it in a vehicle, but if you're a founder and you're 35, like it becomes then a hard to manage that vehicle yeah. you know you got to think about it you got to like spread your assets around you got to then everything's owned by the company so it becomes more hassle than it's worth yeah and maybe as a person buying it that that's less attractive uh, honestly it? well to me i just thought i'm going to owe the tax man some money i'm going to pay it and we're done with it that's it it's clean it's easy right yeah. but what i will say about the government is you know for any founder in australia like be blessed that you live in australia because every year we claimed about it cash back in our bank account. This is not subsidies. This is cash. They would give us cash back about 600 to 800 grand a year in R&D. Yeah. So the, that's the government giving us back yeah. money, cash. So thanks, you know, ScoMo for that one. Um, the other thing we got is the accelerated commercialization grant that if we hadn't have got, I don't think we would have that we would have been as aggressive overseas because yeah. when we raised two mil, it was probably enough to do Australia, but it wasn't enough to go overseas. Yeah. So they gave us close to a million dollars, the government, free cash. We obviously had to apply for it and be, you know, yep. be approved, but we got a million dollars from the government to go do very speculative things that if we hadn't have done, we'd no way would have ever ended up where we are. Yeah. So look, you know, no one likes paying tax, but use the government grants, use the government to your advantage. And if I look at, we, we raised a lot of money, but we, in terms of, apart from the last raise, which is our biggest, we only used about five and a half million in capital to get to our exit point. So that's a fairly sizable multiple because of the government subsidies. So, you know, we probably used three and a half million dollars worth of the government's money. Yeah. So it's not bad. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, they didn't get the end, but, you know, they helped us along the way. They don't help everybody. Yeah. But, you know. So, 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 like, if you, if you honestly... In Australia, what I will tell you from a founder's point of view, some some actual real like credible advice is the problem. And I, and I got I got approached by another couple of guys about this very very topic. And I said, people who invest in startups invest in the people, right? And the people need to have some credibility. Now, if your credibility is based off a business that is built in Ireland or the Cayman Islands, yeah, that's a lot of risk for an angel investor to take on. And so. You as a founder have to build credibility by building it on Australian shores with Australian engineers or Australian staff because otherwise you're not going to get the confidence from your investors. So yeah. don't try and skimp 10% on your tax by trying to set up a vehicle in the Cayman Islands or wherever it is because the ATO is pretty sharp, mate. They'll, they'll get you one yeah. way or the other. But the main thing is investors just simply will not invest in something that they think has any degree of risk or uh, future tax implications uh, connected to it. And even the, the very mention of you trying to do that will make them very nervous to yeah. say this guy's focusing on the wrong areas. So my advice is do it local, do it Australian, and, and, and they'll back you. Okay, okay. 
De- um, death and taxes, right? Yeah, death. Yeah, that's well, they're not going away. That's for sure. Dutchy three two four. What drives and motivates you to do what you do? Fear of failure. Yeah, I, yeah. I think you've answered that. So hopefully, Dutchy can hear that. <laughs> um, um, this this. It's radical. funny though, you know. I didn't realize this, but there are two types of people who are who win. And uh, I, 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 someone told me this before. I watched the last dance with Michael Jordan. Yeah. And there are people that win because they they want to win and there are people that win because they don't want to lose. And it kind of got me thinking and that's a very, even though it sounds the same, it's a totally different psyche. Yeah. So I watched Jordan and that guy was just obsessed with winning. Winning. And confidence, but a, a pathological psycho. psycho. Yeah. Yeah, and everyone can see that. And most CEOs are psychos and you have to be because you've got to be mercenary to, yeah. to run businesses and have no empathy, but that lack of empathy means you're just like, like on your on your game. But he just loved winning, loved yeah. it. I hated losing. I didn't want to lose, and, and so when I say fear was my motivator, like that analogy for me really hit home to: Did I play well in football because I wanted to play well, or did I play well because I didn't want to play shit? Yeah, and I know the answer to that question. It's the same thing in business. I didn't want to win because I wanted to win. I wanted to succeed because I didn't want to fail. Yeah. So, okay. not a great driver, but often the one that drives people the most. Um, Radical RX Spider, which I know this clown. Uh, are you faster than JP? So clearly you're not. Um, Over what uh, distance just, and the what? It, I think he's talking about in cars, mate. So, you know. Well, I, I supply JP's cars, uh, uh, so uh, uh, I can tone him down if uh, I need. I'll give um, Brad a lone uh, Kruger and I will take another car of my choice. No, um, I can't drive sports cars because uh, my anxiety gets too high. <laughs> uh, Aaron, Jenison, what gave him the initial idea to create the program? You've explained that. Um, what makes an entrepreneur? I think you've explained that in in many other ways, but have you got another way that? Well, I guess um, a real entrepreneur is someone who doesn't do it as a side hustle. That's willing to go in, yeah. or all in, basically. Oh, it's all an all in. It's an all or nothing, and you got to be prepared to sacrifice everything. To me, that's the difference between an entrepreneur and someone who starts a small business. All right, entrepreneur is parallel to risk. Entrepreneurs typically take on significant amount of risk and that is, you know, obviously shown in many different ways, including taking capital off other people, yep. which means you're incurring risk and debt into other people and, and, and that and that uh, that liability. And I think that and this is not a blanket statement again, don't quote me on blanket statements, but to me when I look at entrepreneurs, I think about guys that are going all in you know, doing everything that they like. The Vino Mofo guys are good examples of guys that just went in all in hard early, you know, just lived or died by their business model, pivoted a few times, you know, and just gave it absolutely everything. Yeah. And then they were successful. You know, the catch guys are the same and the Kogan guys are the same. Like yeah. they give up their last dollar and they go hard and they execute and they, they nothing holding them back. They want to take no for an answer. So, you know, they're normally guys that end up at the end and go, I've got nothing, absolutely zilch in the tank. Yeah. So, it brings us to the, uh, it's been awesome chatting, Brad, but it brings us, these are some hard-hitting questions, like all the ones before you are insignificant compared to these. If you were doing, if you weren't doing what you're doing right now, what would you be doing? I mean, right here in the studio? 
No. <laughs> it's one. It's, it's a way, why do people <clears throat> always try to question this question? With a question? With a question. Yeah. Like if you weren't running Citrus AD, what would, what would you... Citrus Ad, mate. Oh, ad. Ad. No, ad. Fucking ad company. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you, what would you be doing? Um, Let's say money's not an object. You could do whatever. You know, could yeah. Well, use. money's not an object now yeah, and I could do whatever and I'm still working where I'm working. So that's a... I'll leave you with that thought. Okay. Oh, that's your <laughs> and answer. Then, and, and everyone can think about why. But if I had a, if I wasn't working where I was working, um, you know, I think the next chapter for me is probably trying to do something that's a little bit more uh, uh, using my entrepreneurial ability to um, go down the philanthropical, philanthropical route. Yeah. Try and leave a mark on the world, you know. I think that I'd get bored sitting around doing nothing. I think I need to get my, you know, body back in shape. You know, I've lost my biceps these days. So. You've got bigger biceps than me these days, which is which is a sad state of affairs. When I look at you and go, geez, you look, your rig looks pretty decent. I'm like, I was once upon a time 6% body fat. <laughs> I can rip the donuts, but not anymore. Uh, two kids in the startup will do that to you. But no, I think like, What's next? I think that probably be a better question is what's next for me. And I think after Citrus, like I, I still love the startup space. I think it's so interesting. I love solving problems. Yeah, That's all I do. I love solving problems. That's my passion. And um, if I can do that in a meaningful way, I'd like to do it. Um, but if I can do it in a meaningful way by helping other founders, I will. Yeah. And everyone says, well, I'll start my own VC and I'll invest in yeah. founders, whatever. But, or I'll start my own company again. But the reality is, is, what I've learned and what I've done and what I've been through is much better scattered across 50 or 100 founders than it is me trying to do something else, right? Yeah, just one. I don't need to do anything else. Yeah. Um, what do you wish you'd known? What do you wish you had known when you first started out? And what would what's your advice to people wanting to start out in the tech industry today? There's something that... Yeah. Well... What could you basically? What could you tell the the sixteen, the eighteen-year-old, the twenty-year-old Brad that you know now that you just wish you'd bloody known? It's a tough one because I think that being part of an entrepreneur and being successful is you just you have to walk through the dark doors blindly without knowing what's coming yeah. because you don't really know who you are until you get smacked in the face and knocked to the canvas, right? <laughs> As, as, a, as a, one of our great philosophers of all time, Mike Tyson said, you know, about Avenger. Avenger Holyfield, right? You've got a plan so you get punched in the face, right? Yeah. So, so, like, there are definitely strategic things that you can do. Um, the thing that's not going to resonate a lot with founders in my next comment is sometimes the problem you think you're solving is just not there. So, very, like, question your business model. Go, to, go out to investors, even if you're not going to raise capital and test it, not with one or two or three people that say, oh, that's a good idea. Like, mm. no, nah, go to 50, 100 people and actually test it to see if it actually will resonate. Because if it doesn't, don't waste five years of your life yeah. with a lot of pain, right? If you do think you're onto something and you've got something great, as I said earlier, spend your time raising the capital because if nothing else, having $2 million in the bank is going to give you 18 months to two years of making mistakes 
because that's exactly what you're going to do. Yeah. You're going to have every best intention to build a product. You know, you've got an idea about your market fit, and your financials look pretty good and, you know, the chances are one, two to 10 things are going to go wrong and you're going to have to pivot, stop, change, move and the money allows you to do that without having that pressure of, oh, shit, we've made a mistake. Got them changing your focus. Out of cash, got yeah. to go back to the shareholders yeah. Yeah. and, yeah. So... I don't want to put people off starting a startup, but if, if you can try and find, not someone like me, but if you can try and find someone that has done it, but try and find someone that's failed a lot. You know, don't, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of founders out there that I look at and I, I think that every founder goes through hard times, some much harder than others though. Yeah. But I do look at kind of the Silicon Valley guys and because I speak to a lot of them as well and I kind of like – you've just gone from like Amazon to somewhere else. You've got to like, you know, you're from Stanford. You've got a pretty nice resume. You've got a pretty cool idea. You know, you've got $10 million thrown at you in your seed round. Like, you know, that's dream factory for Australian companies. And, you know, they kind of get nurtured, right? But what they end up being is basically just employees of the VCs. Mm. So you look at a lot of those guys and, and you think about like um, the, 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 they may have built unicorns, but you don't want to talk to a first-time unicorn builder. You want to talk to someone who's failed three or four times, twice, once, whatever it may be. And it's not even about failing. It's about I, I, I work on it as like years done, you know, because if you don't fail, you've pivoted. Yeah. So every year that you've been in a startup, the amount of knowledge that you've gained, whether you've succeeded or failed, is immense. So if you just, you know, so again, search the world. Don't protect your idea. Someone else has already got your idea. Don't think you've got something novel. You don't. That was the, one of the hard lessons I learned early. Um, people that make it are the people that are well capitalized, get to market quickly, and have a great support network. That's yep. it. In a nutshell. Great three tips there. Uh, if there was one thing that you could do that would have an impact on the world, what would it be? It's very, you know, some people talk about themselves here, some two people. Talk about world peace, uh, get rid of hunger. Like we have all sorts of, uh, and then some you people can get rid just, of hunger. Can't you? It, it, and your so, milk's so, rather expensive. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Here we go. Those Let's not talk about mate. milk. Oh, I just had a whole thing about milk yesterday. Oh. So move on. So what's the one thing? Is there one thing that you, know, you think you can make a mark, or are you doing it? Well, I think it's first and foremost it starts in your own four walls. Well, if you can be a better husband and better dad, yeah. You, breeding two children that are going to go out and make an impact in the world, right? So first and foremost, I can't take my eye off that. So making sure that my kids are grounded, empathetic, understand the world. They, like my best gift is giving those two to the world, right? Uh, if I didn't have kids, I would probably attack more dangerous challenges like child trafficking, sex trafficking. Yeah. Like I'd go for the jugular. But what I know about that industry is that <clears throat> there's some seriously powerful people in it that would have you lynched in a heartbeat if you know if you ever went out and decided to try and whistleblow. So it's a very very dangerous yeah. one. But I'm, you know, if I didn't have kids and I was a silo in the world, I'd probably go after something like that. Go for the jugular right at the top. Because it's dangerous, oh, man. But it's, it's fucking real though. Like yeah, it is real. It's you know hundreds of thousands of people every year that are just taken and shipped off to other countries, and it happens here. It happens around the world and I think there, there are tons of good causes that you can put your mind to um, 
but to me, like you, those people don't even get a fighting chance. Like, yeah. Uh, but look, you know, there's a there's <laughs> you've only got to look around the world for five seconds and realize that, that there's there's tons of shit out there. So you look at you know you can't cure everything. Yeah. You can't cure cancer really. You can't cure coronavirus. You know, not not in a massive way anyway. So it's about what can you do every day, and what can you have an impact on. Yeah. And it's about having an impact on a few amount of people. So close friends, family, and people that kids. you care. Yeah, that's it. Okay, that's a very thoughtful answer. And we've got to the last question. Uh, last or best or last, right? Yeah, this is um, this is um, I'm just going to say it. If you died and got reincarnated or came back as a Black Panther, a board game. What board game would best describe Brad Moran's life? Um, it's been lots of, I've had lots of stuff here. I've had um, a bit of snakes and ladders. No, I instantly go to, um, well, I'm trying to think of a game that relies a lot on emotion. Oh, okay. And fear of losing. And I think that Monopoly probably has that a lot because... <laughs> You land on a property and you're like, it's not a great one, but I don't want anyone else to get it. <laughs> so you end up buying Old Kent Road. Fucking, you own the brown, you own the mudslide, the shitstorm at the start, but it's like, so I would say, I thought about chess. I'm like, nah, chess is, chess is unemotional. And hey. Chess is all about just strategic thinking in a mathematical way, yeah. which is not me. It would be an emotional game. Uh, I thought about Texas Hold'em like poker yeah. because well, that does get emotional. Well, it gets and a bit of playing poker, you know. You've but there isn't about. so much of the fear of missing out. The thing that describes me most about poker and why I'm good for the first hour and terrible at winning is because I get bored and I'm yeah. the eternal optimist, thinking, you know what, this offsuit two and three, well, there's going to be three threes on the. On, on the flop here, I'm, I'm a chance, <laughs> and, uh, and so you know, there's a bit of that that describes me. Um, but I'd say Monopoly, just because of its complexity, it's linked to not wanting to lose, wanting to control the board. It's the control aspect. It's the fear of not getting things on the board. Um, but I don't like the luck aspect of it. But even there, but I look at my life and go, my life has been extremely lucky. Yeah, like. Fucking lucky. I'm, I'm the luckiest bloke alive. Um, so rolling the dice is just like being in a startup. You know, you roll them. Sometimes they roll your way. Sometimes they don't. You land on Mayfair. What do you do? You take it or not? Like, is it worth it? Is it not worth yeah. it? So I'd probably say Monopoly probably describe me best. Wow. And I'll, I'll go as far to say that's the most thought out answer. Clearly, Brad's a fan, and he's um, even prepped. Cl clearly he's prepped. Uh, but that answer is amazing because that pretty much sums up everything you've said. And I, I, I have to say, it has been fantastic. I mean, to get inside your head a little bit, quite frightening, to be honest. And and, and if tread I, in the I, I tread very fucking carefully, <laughs> Jesus Christ, I think I need to go psychiatrist. Um, but this is how bad I got my psychologist retired. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see this bloke anymore. Oh, I need a way out. Oh, fuck it. I'm retiring. <laughs> that's a sign. So, so for... He was for, 75 years old. Oh, he's getting on a bit. Um, for us to be able to hear that and for you to download in such a raw, 
honest, open form. That's what people really want. That's hence why people actually follow the things that we do as a team is because we say it how it is. You've said it how it is exactly to the T of what has happened in your story and it is a quite remarkable story and it all comes back to fucking hard work and putting everything on the line and that's that's what I, I've seen from as a investor but as a friend I, I class ourselves as friends albeit me sort of wondering how you are and how, how you're coping with life I mean Citrus and Publix they've been fantastic for you to deal with from what I've seen so yeah. you know I wish you all the best for whatever you're going to do next and for well not next you're still at Citrus so I know that, that the Publix will be trying their hardest to hey Brad what could you do because of your, your high calibre thoughts and deep thought too because you know most people brushed you off as a fucking football player that you know oh he's a football player he wouldn't know shit and he's all of a sudden done amazingly well and, and I'm you like me we have a fair few haters but fuck you guys because <laughs> the reality is we say things are what it's on our mind and we're not afraid to and you know, having you here and coming in, uh, it means a lot. And uh, I, I can't, I've told you many times, you totally changed my fucking life. Mm. And I know you've made a lot of other people very happy along the way, but it's more of the exciting part is what, what's going to happen with, you know, me knowing you. I mean, you're a young buck. I'm a, I'm a little bit older than you. I feel old. Have yeah. you had a hip replacement y- yet? Yeah, no. yeah, not yet. Um, we had your hip replacement. I, I haven't. But to be able to give that insight, especially, you know, the football is one part, but it's it showed how that set up a lot of how you are today, what happened with your parents in England, how that, and that that's what everyone underestimates and everyone forgets. They just see the end product mm. and no one realises the lessons learned, the battle scars along the way. And you you talked about a lot of that today and, uh, you know, hearing it and other people are going to listen to this that are starting up, yeah. they'll probably be fucking frightened. But, you know, having those, if you truly believe in it, you can do it. Correct. And that's exactly what you said, and uh, I thank you. That's a great acid test, though, because if you truly believe in it, then you'll take what I say with a pinch of salt, and you'll say, "No, I don't care what you think. I'm going to go do it." And but that—that is it. That's the (laughs) test. That's the test, (laughs) right? Is because because even though I've explained that it is not easy, you can't. I can't explain to someone how it feels until they felt it. Yeah. But if they're if they have the right motivations and the right intentions and they got half a brain on their head and they're good to people and they don't, you know, they they have their morals and ethics. You know, fortune favours the brave but fortune also favours people that look after other people, you know. Um, so no founder ever gets to the top without an immense amount of support from other people yeah. and anyone that tells you that gets to the top and has a chip on their shoulder or says, that, yeah, it was all me, um, fucking I'm all awesome. They're cheats, they're lies. It's not true. Yeah. Everyone's got, you know, there are drivers, obviously, people drive businesses, but don't forget how, like, lucky you are if you manage to get off the ground. You know, don't forget to reward people that help you, like, whether it's, and it's not reward with money, it's, it's often time. People want your time. Like my, it's totally off topic, but my son, he's a very empathetic, emotional kid. I wonder where he gets it from. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, we we're at Glenelg, and he like, he saw a homeless guy, and he started crying, and he gets really upset. Uh, and he's like, "Oh, 
Dad, can we, can we go give that guy like a thousand bucks or something? And I said, I said, look, I, I, I really love your empathy, but I said, that's often like money doesn't solve all the problems. I said, he'd probably prefer you have a coffee, go take a coffee to him and a sandwich and go sit with him for an hour and talk to him like he's a human being, then throw a hundred dollars of cash and go yeah. see you later. So, you know, I think there's a huge degree of, you know, don't want to get emotional now, but probably <laughs> the fucking end of the show. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, but there's a huge degree of being human um, that not only helps you start in business uh, or helps you with clients or customers or staff, but at the end of the day, people buy into you. You're the brand. You're what they buy into. And if you're not genuine or honest or inspiring, like it's probably not for you, right? You, you've got to – those are traits that you're normally born with. The inspiring stuff is a little bit harder to develop, particularly if you're an introvert, but I'm introverted. But if you ask anyone in my business, am I an introvert or an extrovert? Mm. They're like, fucking he holds the room like the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> but I hate it. But I know I've got to do it. Um, and, and, and someone said to me at a function the other week, they're like, it's just weird watching you because like around the office, you're like super quiet and then in a sales meeting, it's just like snap. You're just on. Yeah. Like, So a lot of founders don't want to do the sales work. But at the end of the day, whether it's a customer, an investor or a staff member, they're always buying you. You know, so um, and they'll see straight through people that are bullshitting and, 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 and they want to go on your journey with you and you'd be surprised how many people want to help but you got you got to be vulnerable, right? And that's half the challenge is people don't want to be vulnerable because it's a big bad world. And often, if you can tr you trust the wrong people, sometimes I did, you get burnt um, heavily. <laughs> but being vulnerable will ultimately get you where you need to be in the long run. So, and there you have it. Thank you, Brad Moran. That's a wrap. I didn't get through any of the figs. <laughs>